Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 81. Uh, So a few things to uh, get out of the way before we jump into the episode proper. Uh, Number one, um, I wanted to thank everybody for their patience over the last couple of weeks. Uh, This episode just kept getting pushed back, uh, and we did a couple of mini-sodes in a row. So for those that maybe don't know about those, Uh, A couple weeks ago, we talked about my ninth favorite movie of all time, The Maltese Falcon. Last week, we talked about Josh's ninth favorite movie of all time, Jules and Jim. So you can go back and listen to those. Each episode is about 30 minutes. Uh, Wanted to, (laughs) this is probably a long shot, but um, let everyone know that uh, this coming weekend, so that's the 29th, 30th, and 31st, uh, I'm going to be at WonderCon uh, in Anaheim, and I recognize that... uh, People listening to this probably are not going to be there, but I know of a couple people that are that listen to this and Battleship Pretension. So uh, if you think you're going to be there, uh, feel free to tweet me, and uh, I enjoy meeting listeners, and so uh, I will do what I can to, to say hi to you at some point. So uh, just tweet me or email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com, and uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, morelessons, so you can do that. Um, it remains to be seen whether Josh will be there or not, uh, but I know that David, my co-host for Battleship Pretension, he will be there as well. So, uh, moving on. Okay, so this is something that's that's kind of important, um, and I will link to it in the uh, the post uh, for this episode. Um, <clears throat> so there's something going on right now in the world of podcasting that needs to be uh, addressed. It is, it, frankly, it's not going to affect me because my podcast is too small. It's not even going to affect Battleship Pretension because that's too small. But nonetheless, it's it's important. Um, so there is a uh, a company called Personal Audio that uh, is what is referred to as a patent troll. A patent troll, pardon me. Um, and what they do is they buy up patents uh for things that they did not create or whatever, and then they look for the opportunity to sue people that might be in violation of that patent. Um, and so what they did is a, a few years ago, they bought up the patent for uh, RSS feeds specifically in relation to uh, audio programming because, of course, there's RSS feeds for any number of things. But anyway, so they bought that up, and uh, they have since sued uh, a few podcasts that are in somehow in violation of this of this patent, and so I think they've sued like Adam Carolla, um, and then I think uh, How Stuff Works, um, and it's just a matter of time I think before they sue like a Mark Marin or a Chris Hardwick or a Jimmy Pardo. Um, some of these people I know, some of these people I don't, but it doesn't really matter because you know even though even though they're just suing the guys that they can get money out of, like it could change the nature of podcasting and could make it a little less free to, to do. And so, um, 
So what you can do is you can look up uh, a piece of legislation called the Shield Act. It is co-sponsored by a Republican and a Democratic uh, and a Democrat um, congressman. Uh, so look up the Shield Act, and you can sign. Uh, there will be a link to a petition that you can sign, uh, in which you it basically encourages your congressman to get on board with this uh, this piece of legislation, and it would really. It basically would just penalize uh, patent trolls so that if they sue somebody unsuccessfully, they have to pay uh, damages. And so it would it would curb uh, lawsuits like this. So anyway, wanted to uh, like I said, I'll link to it in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, but it's something that I find to be very important. OK, so the last thing and I mentioned it, I think, in the in the last minisode is uh, this will be the last episode for uh, a little while. I am going to be taking a break from. A number of things uh, in the month of April, uh, podcasting. Uh, I'm not going to be doing Battleship Pretension. I'm not going to be doing more than one lesson. Uh, and there's a few other obligations that I will also not be doing. So there will be no more than one lesson, whether it be a regular episode or a mini-sode for the month of April. Um, there will still be probably blogs posted and that sort of thing, but there will be nothing to actually listen to. So uh, you can come back in May, and uh, and and we'll be, we'll be back then. But... Um, and I'll talk more about that hiatus slash sabbatical uh, later on in this episode, actually. So, uh, but I did want to say that for those of you who listen to Battleship Pretension, uh, that will continue. And it will be David and a number of guest hosts. One of them is our guest today. So, with all that out of the way, I will welcome in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hello, everyone. Almost almost exactly five minutes you brought me in. That's oh yeah, all that's right, pretty, pretty interesting. It's very exciting. So um, now I think at this point, I think at this point you're you, well, obviously you're done. But uh, with your with the movie that you were on, mm-hmm. um, I think you were right in the thick of it last week when we were record when we recorded that Jules and Jim episode. I sure was, and I was short on sleep, and now I'm rested up, and I'm. Back to being normal. Yeah. So you won't be punchy. You won't be silly. No. You'll just be just totally straight-laced and uh, and focused. We'll see. No okay. promises. Fair enough. Uh, so I mentioned that we had a guest this episode. Um, he's Look, he's a fan favorite. Some of you may recall that a long time ago, I put a, I put a poll out in the field, as they would say on West Wing and other places, I would assume, mm-hmm. um, regarding... Somebody's phone is going off, and that is infuriating. Uh, but anyway, so uh, I put a poll in the field, and I said, "Hey, everybody, who's your favorite guest?" Now, Josh, my assumption is that people would say Tom Wilson, obviously Biff from Back to the Future. How could, could that be. not be? Or maybe even uh, Doug Jones. Well, maybe the... a Doug Jones. Yeah. No, our guest today blew those guys out of the water. It's like they might as well not have even been on the show. <laughs> Well, let's not let's not go that far. <laughs> no, I feel like that's what was communicated to me. But anyway, um, so our, our guest today is uh, writing a note to me. I assume he's saying, "Oh, okay, fair enough." I, I thought he was going to say, "Cut all of this out," but that is not what he said. Not in uh, Dave Coulier fashion. Okay, so our guest today, Jason Eakin. Jason, how you doing? Hi, hi, Tyler. Oh, wow. You brought me in at just exactly 68 minutes. That's exciting. Thank you. 
Have we been going 68 minutes? Yep. Yeah. Man, I must have fallen asleep. You know, once you get me ta- you get me talking about the shield act and what can I what can I say? Yeah. You actually went through each and every one of the uh poll results <laughs> and hypothesized about who may have, right. have given that one. Cuz I had a number. chart for what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Right. And then what it and I including like the order. Did he describe well. lovely chart? Did he describe yeah. all the charts and the colors and all that? Absolutely. Yeah. I I feel like I would have liked that, but again, I must have been asleep. See, that's like for example and I, I incorporated venn diagrams there is oh really there's a circle that says fun and then one that says more than one lesson there's no intersection there i'll be oh, that's, that's strange so okay let's call john venn <laughs> see what he has to say about that how many the, votes did i receive in that poll well let's see here i don't i don't actually have it in front of me but i believe there are really only like i think like 40 votes cast total because uh i voted 39 times oh that, that would explain it that oh, would explain it the 15 votes you, that's very strange yeah because you know what sometimes even you prefer doug jones to yourself I, yeah <laughs> i get enough of me but you know what i don't and neither do our listeners indeed so go. okay jason I mean, that is that is a, a an incorrect assumption based on the data <laughs> well we'll see how it goes but uh so jason how you doing i'm doing pretty good all right so anything uh, anything new to report these days? How's everything going? I know you've been doing a lot of writing, getting stuff done. Yeah, I am doing a lot of writing. Okay. Um, about to finish up writing a, a, a pilot, which is my first pilot. So I don't normally write television, but yeah, I, I've been doing a lot. That's the main thing I've been working on recently. Mm-hmm. So also trying to get some short films completed so that I can try to direct one this year. All right. So, okay. And we will keep everybody updated uh, on that. Now then, we want to jump right into it, almost nine minutes in, <coughs> not including uh, theme music, unfortunately. So, and by the way, the theme song is now about 12 minutes long. Okay. So. I'm at 9.04. What, what do you got? I'm at 9.04. <laughs> oh my. Well, yeah, but I said it and then you, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Mm. We seem to be off. Uh, and there was some, there was some silence right before we started, but moving on. Oh boy. Okay. So the, uh, the movie that we'll be talking about today was just released, um, on DVD and Blu-ray within the last couple of weeks. So actually it's pretty fortuitous that we, uh, that we wound up uh, pushing this back. So, okay. The movie is called Zero Dark Thirty. It is directed by Catherine Bigelow and written by Mark Boll. Um, it was nominated for a number of Oscars this past year, including Best Picture, Best Actress, Best uh, Screenplay, and a number of technical awards as well. Uh, it won one of the Sound Awards, but I think it tied uh, another movie uh, for that. So uh, so it's interesting because, uh, and I know that we try not to talk too much about uh, awards and, and that sort of thing, but uh, what was fascinating is going into awards season, Zero Dark Thirty won all kinds of critics awards, especially for Best Director, and yeah. then, it, then it did not get nominated for Best Director. She won almost everything up to the point where the nominations came out, and after that, nothing. Nothing. And didn't uh, get the DGA. Didn't get any. Uh, yeah, any I think she was she nominated for a DGA. I think she was, but she and didn't she was win. nominated, but she didn't win because nom- those nominations happened before the Oscar nominations came out. It was almost as if yeah. people saw the Oscar nominations and they were like, "Oh well, she didn't even get nominated. And probably shouldn't yeah, do that." No, I, guess, seriously. I guess she's a loser. She's one of those losers. <laughs> she sure is. About. How did they get into Hollywood? Get them out. <laughs> <laughs> Got to make room for some other people. Yeah. But uh, so going into it, and I knew, and I also knew that like, oh, all right, it's about. Uh, it's about the search for Osama bin Laden. This sounds pretty intense. And uh, Catherine Bigelow uh, won Best Director for uh, The Hurt Locker, which we 
discussed many, many episodes ago. And that is a very intense film. I assumed Zero Dark Thirty would be as well. And so I went into I went into the film with the trepidation, just being like, all right, this is probably not going to be a fun experience or a light experience. Uh, and I was mistaken. I wouldn't go as so far as to say that it was fun, and it certainly was not light. But, man, it, it moved along and... I just really loved the movie. And so for people that do listen to Battleship Pretension, it was my 10th favorite movie of last year. But frankly, thinking more about the movie as I have the last few days in preparation for this discussion, I think if I were to make my list now, I think it'd probably be up a little higher, maybe even in, maybe even crack the top five. But uh, anyway, so um, and we'll talk more about it. Uh, we'll talk more about you know our reactions to it in a moment um, as far as like specific elements. Uh, but let's talk about just broadly like uh, – our individual expectations going into it and then just general reaction to the film itself. Jason, we'll start with you and then we'll get to Josh in a moment. Okay. Um, was, well, as you know, Tyler, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the hurt locker. Yeah. Um, I like it. I thought it was good. I've, I've only seen it just once in, in theaters, but, um, I really wasn't on board with it the way a lot of people were. So I, I didn't even particularly want to see, uh, zero dark 30. Mm-hmm. And, if you remember, like maybe as of until the moment that she started winning a bunch of stuff, it really wasn't a movie that was talked about a lot in terms of end of the end of the year awards buzz, things like that. It We're was talking kind of, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, Zero yeah, Dark yeah. Thirty. It was just kind of this movie that was was coming out later. I, I think. I mean, if you if you think of the initial preview, like you don't see Jessica Chastain, you don't even know to what extent she's in the film. So I was just kind of like, you know what? This is probably, it's same director, same writer as the Hurt Locker. Uh, It's probably just not going to be for me. Um, And a good, (laughs) this may seem like a small thing, but to everybody in this room, it was a big thing. So the three of us participated in a, in an Oscar fantasy, a fantasy Oscar draft where in, uh, I think October, November, I never quite remember exactly when it was, but uh, yeah. we, we made our selections for what we thought would be would be nominated and would win Best Picture, Director, Actors, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that first round, the only thing that uh, Zero Dark Thirty got uh, mentioned for was screenplay. Yeah. It was not on, and, and there were several other people who were pretty savvy to this kind yeah. of thing. It was not on our radar at all. Yeah. And it wasn't on the radar of most people who were kind of really early on predicting what the award season stuff was going to be. Yeah. I had Jessica Chastain as a possibility for a supporting actress yeah. <laughs> because we just didn't, I had no idea what the extent of her role was. It yeah. was just the, the actual plot line was, was so unclear and, and left so vague <laughs> and looking back on it. I mean, what a, what a great choice. Yeah. Mm. Um, and somehow it's still, it's still attracted enough attention as it got closer to, to being released. So, so that's my expectations. No. Josh, what about you? I I uh, didn't know anything about it going in. I didn't know it, I, I didn't know anything about it until I heart started to hear people saying how good it was, and then I think that that gave me a good uh, I don't know high hopes about it going in. I, I don't feel like I was disappointed. Um, I felt like it was better than than uh, Hurt Locker. I enjoyed it more. I think there's more to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, both more happening and a little bit more. I think the questions are a little bit more. Have a little bit more meat to them, you know. It's a little, it's a little weightier, um, which I enjoy. Maybe some people don't like that, uh, but it's kind of cool. In, in that we just watched uh, from Russia with Love last night, and it's kind of in, it's not like that at all. But 
it's kind of interesting that it's it's sort of like a modern day spy movie, you know? Like, we don't think of it in terms of spy stuff because we think of it kind of as current events because it's Osama bin Laden and we all remember when that happened. But um, it is like that's what the spy world sort of is nowadays. Yeah. And it is interesting because um, it came out the same year as Argo. And Argo is what won Best Picture. And then as far as the various Guild Awards and stuff, I mean, it just it won everything. And I think a lot of people view them kind of the same. They're, you know, ensemble cast with a lead, char- a lead character, but definitely an ensemble cast um, based on true stories, uh, take place in exotic locations and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, But I think Argo just had the uh, political push behind it. And I don't necessarily mean actual politics. I mean Hollywood politics. Yeah. It had that as well. Um, and, of course, it's interesting, once again, to talk about awards, unfortunately. Uh, neither Ben Affleck nor Catherine Bigelow, who, if one was not the favorite to win Best Director, the other, the other one was. was. Yeah. And neither of them were nominated, and it went to Ang Lee, who I think absolutely deserved it. I thought it was uh, Life of Pi is wonderful. But, um, but yeah, and so... It's fascinating that in the in you know October, November, December during Critics Awards season, Zero Dark Thirty th- that's when its profile went through the roof, mm-hmm. and then when it came for the if you'll pardon me the actual awards the peer awards I guess we could say, mm-hmm. um, Argo just 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 dwarfed everything and I think that's unfortunate and I and I hope that as as time goes on that people will think. Uh, that that Argo will diminish and Zero Dark Thirty will uh, come forward as like one of the most important and one of the most amazing movies of 2012. And I think it already has. I think it actually got some. It got some pretty good box office. It was like number one, uh, one or maybe even two weeks in a row, which is pretty rare for a movie like that. Yeah. No, it made nearly, if not exceeding a hundred million dollars that's and that's great um, yeah, yeah can, you, you compare that to the hurt locker which you know i don't even think cracked 20 no it didn't you know and i mean that's that's pretty good yeah and uh i and did so, not expect it to do that i remember coming i i went to a, a screening before the before it was released i think a, a month or a month and a half and coming out with the guy who who took me to the screening um we just said, "What's the audience for this movie?" Like, if anybody, <laughs> like, I, I'm not sure if they truly knew what the movie was. I just yeah. didn't. I couldn't really see who was going to be jonesing to go see it. Mm. I mean, I guess there's the Osama bin Laden thing, and maybe there's something yeah. cathartic about that, about seeing this this person that everybody has a certain connection to, and and the the manhunt for him. And I think people were were curious. I think they were interested in that. Um, it, I wouldn't say it was a morbid curiosity or perverse curiosity or bloodlust or anything. It's just, yeah. you know, you're, it's a current event kind of thing, and people yeah. were interested. But, yeah, I've come to, at this point, you know, people that can be a little smarmy online, and I've got two outlets for that. <laughs> um, we often talk about box office, and we often talk about the audience, and we usually do it in a pretty derisive uh, way. But you know what? Every once in a while, a movie that is genuinely great – and that you think would never find an audience actually finds one to a surprising degree. And and I at this point, I've come to say, like, I have no idea what an audience is going to do, what the what box office is going to do. Sometimes a movie that is just terrible is going to do great, Blindside. And other times, uh, a movie that... Olympus has fallen. Is it doing well? Of yeah, course it, it is. It did. <laughs> no, it did. I mean... 
It was not projected to do very well. Really? Sorry, I'm saying that because this is the weekend it came out, and I was yeah. just looking at the box office. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's and, not remotely relevant yeah. to what we're talking about. <laughs> and I did say I, ju- I did just see dismiss. I just dismissively said, "Of course it did," and it's because. Now I said that because like it just got so much press. Like leading up to it, yeah. I was like, "Oh, Olympus is falling." So, but that's the thing. At this point, there's no. I don't think there's any rhyme or reason. Sometimes the audiences will will depress me. Sometimes I'll be encouraged by it. So, and with uh, Zero Dark Thirty, I was very excited that it did as well as it did because mm-hmm. it, it it certainly exceeded all expectations. Yeah, I wonder if some of that is due to the uh, the political controversy. Like, I feel like that always helps. Them, you know, that whole thing: no publicity is bad publicity. Mm-hmm. And when you're seeing anything about the movie on the little CNN ticker going across, that's like, well, people are talking about it for a reason they that the filmmakers may not have necessarily intended but yeah mm-hmm. so uh so we'll move into you know what we thought of the film um i already gave like just a very broad uh my my response to it which was i just really really liked it and i like it the more i think about it i think i'll probably be purchasing it on uh on blu-ray because i do tend to because of i am who i am it's a much more procedural film than i think it was put uh, that I think it was marketed as like, I assumed it was going to be all about the mission, but it's about so much more. And it's a nice long, it's people have compared it to Zodiac. And I think the, I think the comparison, uh, bears out and Munich and Munich. And yeah. And just, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me. And I do tend to enjoy that kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. in many ways, it's almost like all the president's men as well. It's just, yeah. just pe- just characters methodically just, getting closer and closer to what it is they're trying to do and it's and it's handled so well that there is violence throughout the film and so there's always that tension but sometimes there's no uh, sometimes the characters are in a situation where there's no possibility of violence and yet it's still tense and and there's still the excitement of like oh they're getting close and so i just had i just had such a such a positive response to it. It's, it's so much of what I look for in a movie. Um, and, uh, and so, and I'll, and we'll get again into more specifics in a moment, but uh, as far as broad response to the film, as far as yourselves, what, what, what did you think? We'll start with Josh this time. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, yeah, I, I thought the, I liked the tension of it. I liked that, uh, it's even though it's that kind of of a procedure like that, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. Um, one of the things that I liked about it, and uh, this is something we were just talking about, even though for for those who don't know, the story was originally the script was being written before Osama bin Laden was was killed. So I think the original plan was that they they never really find him. It's kind of an you know uh, leaves a lot of questions in the air. And then, as they were writing the script, they caught him, and they and they got him. So, then <laughs> they had to say, "Well, we have to change the script now. We know how it ends." And it was like the two thousand four film Fever Pitch. Yes, and that's Just not like where that. the comparisons end. By the <laughs> way, that's true. It's a- <laughs> like when Jimmy Fallon kills the Red Sox. Like it really takes a turn there at the end. I'm sorry. Go on. That was a that was an edgy movie. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I, I thought that gave something interesting to the movie in that it, it's sort of leading up to one conclusion and then it had to change to a different one. And I think that that forced a kind of dramatic structure that was a little bit 
uh, I don't know if I want to say unique or I don't know. It was just it was an interesting and engaging uh, narrative structure because it's not what you expect. It kind of throws you for a loop a little bit. And um, was was it on? Was it in your top ten of the year? It was. I think it was my number five. I was okay. just just looking back at my list. Um, and yeah, I had I had it for number five. Um, so yeah, I, I, those things I liked about it. I liked her Jessica Chastain's performance a lot. Um, she's an actress that I'm liking and everything that I've seen her in so far. Mm-hmm. Um, although I didn't see, what was that? What was that action movie she did last year? She's doing Not an action, action movie? movie. It was like a, Lawless? Know, was it? That's the one. Yeah. Mm. I heard that wasn't that great, but I didn't see it. So and then I she was in mama yeah. this year and then she, oh, yeah? I never saw the help, but mama. I'm sh- that's the one. I believe that's, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think she's, she's very talented. Um, and she she has to carry the movie, and I think she does it well. She has some great, some great. There's there's one, the one moment where she has kind of that when she explodes. That I don't remember who the actor is. Kyle Chandler. Kyle Kyle Chandler's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a great scene. It was one yeah. of those <laughs> one of those scenes when somebody gets angry in a movie, and you you feel like you're right there with him. You're like, yes, yes. Yeah, and we'll um, talk we'll talk more about uh, specific performances yeah. and casting choices in a moment. Yeah. Uh, Jason, your response to the film? You, I know you really liked it. Man, I love it. Okay. Um, it's it's a movie that there's there's one or two of those movies every year that, like I said, you just don't have the expectation for, and um, maybe you know maybe it's so high. Um, it was my number two movie of the year. Um, but probably the biggest and most pleasant surprise for me, mm-hmm. um, just because I didn't have any expectation of, uh, about it. And, you know, I, I don't know if maybe it's it's higher than it would have been if I did have some expectation, but it was just such a refreshing movie in so many different ways. Um, you know, I, I think mostly for me with the way that it handled uh, sort of its politics and, and its point of view – um, there's a, there's a, so many moments that we can get into specifically where they had a chance to really just kind of do the generic uh, Hollywood um, sort of hitting us over the head with their perspective instead of allowing the characters to have a complex, um, sometimes frustrating perspective, sometimes yeah. uh, perspectives that are kind of at odds with with uh, what you think or thought the the movie was maybe maybe trying to say, and for me. Uh, that just that makes it so much more enjoyable and so much more so much richer um, than, than I was expecting it to be. I was expecting something fairly uh, down the middle in terms of kind of uh, a, a per, any perspective on the war on terror. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just I was so pleasantly surprised. I was I was surprised by the writing, the the strength of the writing. Uh, the strength of Chastain's performance, like you said, I, I knew she was like a a really great actress from seeing, you know, um, Take Shelter and the three hundred movies she did uh, last last year, um, but I don't think that I assumed she had this kind of performance mm-hmm. in her. I thought it was. No. A ferocious performance, and you kind of alluded to that, and that's yeah, what you like absolutely. And and to think that like what I saw her in first and loved her in was Tree of Life, yeah, and uh, that's a great performance. But this is a totally different performance, or Take yeah. Shelter too. Like this yeah. is a totally different performance. It just shows a great range. It really does. Yeah, um, yeah. So I wanted to mention some of the uh, some of the some of the things that you talked about, Jason. First off, I want to talk about the the politics of the film and. Uh, 
so this movie was written by Mark Bull, who won the Oscar for writing The Hurt Locker, a movie that also uh, people noted at the time had no real interest in having a political point of view, was much more interested in just kind of getting down in the trenches with the characters involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And it reminds me of something. uh, I remember uh, years ago I had somebody on uh, Battleship Pretension, a comedian named Graham Elwood, who's been on several times since then. And uh, one thing that he likes to do is he likes to perform for the troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he said that there are some trips where it actually was quite frightening. He could hear bombs going off and all that. But he also, in his downtime, would talk to soldiers and and, uh, and he would go on tours of like, um, <coughs> excuse me, of like Saddam Hussein's, like his son's homes. And he just said that he himself has a political perspective on whether the wars were right or that kind of thing. But he's like, but once you get there, First off, just being there and then seeing the way he described it. It was like when you go to, uh, was it Uday Hussein? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you go to his house and you see his swimming pool in the backyard, which is empty, except there are a lot of blood stains in it. It's like, that's when you realize like, okay, there might be more to this than my general opinion about it as someone yeah. safely removed. Mm-hmm. And then when he talked to, when he talked to the soldiers about it, um, you know, they would say it's a, there was no real room for politics in their lives. They had to; they just had to do what they had to do. They might have had opinions about whether the war was just, they or or not. They might have just said, "I don't have time for that. I have a job to do." Um, and just that attitude, I think, is very much reflected in the Hurt Locker and in uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. And, of course, there are some people that talk about uh, political uh, aspects of the film, which we'll talk about in a moment. But um, that is something that I really like about these films. And I guess the common denominator, aside from Catherine Bigelow, is Mark Bull, who started out as a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I think he brings a journalistic mentality to these films and the scripts that he's writing not a and there are plenty of journalists who incorporate commentary and he feel he it seems like he felt like he didn't want to do that uh he felt uh, if i were if i were to guess and i'm sure he's done a number of interviews but if i had to guess i would venture to say that he thought it wouldn't be doing justice to his characters to incorporate his safe distant perspective mm-hmm. on what was on what was going on yeah but um but anyway so um and I, wa- I wanted to get your guys' opinion on this. Uh, unlike The Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty is based on a true story. Uh, some of it has been confirmed, but a good portion of it by a number of people have said, this is not how it happened. Does that... I know my answer, but I'll, I'll throw it to you guys. Does that ruin the experience for you when you watch this knowing that maybe that, that this maybe it didn't work out this cleanly not that it's a clean movie by any stretch but like that it maybe it it all seemed a little too easy and then in actual in in real life maybe it didn't go quite this way does that ruin a a viewing experience for you or does it really have does it have an impact at all jason i'll go to you i don't care okay i I don't think it really does for me either i I mean if i feel like somehow the changes that they've made to it make I don't know. I feel like you can make changes to a true story that have some kind of like moral change to it. I, I don't know. You, you can change it enough so that I think I'd have a problem with it, but I can't imagine there's anything in this story that changes it enough from the true story enough so that I would have a problem with it. No, you, you know, there could be 
I, I could see there being a lot more types of information. I mean, the sort of the in terms of the information they need to get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. uh, it is fairly straightforward when you really strip it down. Um, so I could imagine there would be lots more than that. I forget if if Maya is a composite or not. Either way, I don't really think it matters. Yeah. There were there were probably n- tons more people involved in in any sort of section of the movie. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, and that's that. That's fine. That's that's why you. This is a distillation of that. Yeah. Um, as long as it's not, is it? As long as it's not being just genuinely dishonest with sort of what it's trying to evoke and the points it's trying to make. Yeah. Then I'm I'm pretty fine with it. Compare it to something like Argo, where the ending is just so totally not what happened. Um, and yeah, that could have worked. That that sequence didn't work for me. Uh, because it felt manufactured, mm-hmm. but if it was, which in fact it was, yeah, yeah. And, and it was. But if it had, if it had been better, yeah, you might not have noticed. <laughs> then, and I hadn't noticed, then I don't necessarily have a problem with them saying, "Well, here's how it happened," but we're trying to heighten this aspect of it so that the audience really feels what may not have been on the surface, but could have been going through the characters' heads, whatever. So yeah. I'm 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 pretty much okay with it. Yeah, with Zero Dark Thirty, I feel like it's just, we we should look at it the same way that we look at good historical fiction. Just because it's recent doesn't mean it's not historical, and yeah. it's you, you have to you have to change things in order to make it into a movie, or it would be yeah. extremely boring. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it would have been if they had. There's a difference between ch- changing it so that it becomes the story you wish it were. Yeah, and yeah. simplifying it so that you can tell as much of the story as is possible yeah. without it turning into this dry. You know, History Channel reenactment. Yeah, yeah. and I, I never have the feeling in this movie that they that the filmmakers have an idea that they want to push, and they're using the story to just right to further that idea, heighten above, or, or I guess uh, out. What's the wrong word I'm looking for? I'd guess say even more so because they had to change that ending to match the actual true story. Mm-hmm. I think it's that I just don't, maybe some people have a, a much sort of hard and fast line of what based on a true story means to them but that phrase based on yeah. uh, to my mind gives them quite a bit of leeway yeah. um, and I do view it as historical fiction the same way I, I'm currently watching um, The Pacific which uh, I know some people don't like but I am really loving um, I view that the same way even though it's got actual you know, uh, marines that they're following who mm-hmm. speak at the beginning of some of the episodes um, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's historical fiction. Yeah, um, yeah. That there is a there is a movie that uh, Jason and I don't necessarily agree on a lot of the time for different reasons. But one of the things about the movie A Beautiful Mind that bothers me is that they they change a lot from the uh, and you know as time has gone on, I actually have come to appreciate a lot of that film, um, oh. specifically just kind of the for lack of a better term fantasy sequences and how well it's it all hangs together. Um, but from a script standpoint and from a uh, you know retelling of a true story standpoint, one of the things that bothers me is when you look up the actual story, <clears throat> you discover that the moment that John Nash is diagnosed with schizophrenia, his wife divorced him. Now, she did stay in his life, yeah. but she divorced him. And then when he, get, when he got the uh, Nobel Prize, 
they got remarried. And it's like, well, that would not necessarily imply this timeless love story of, yeah. of committing to someone <laughs> through thick and thin. Because once things got thick or thin, I never remember which one is worse. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> the, things, the moment things started getting bad, it's like, okay, well, I don't want to be married to this person. Right. So. But through, but in the movie, she stays married and she stays committed. And yeah, things get tough, but she's in it to win it. Because and how inspiring a story! Except the, the actual story is not that. There, you wish it were this other story. And so part of me is just like, you know what? Just take this story. Say it was inspired by true events. Change the change names. Change names. Yeah, like I'm okay with <laughs> yeah. that. But stuff like that is is it's kind of a picky point. But it's an example of what we're talking about. Where yeah, and that's that's an example. That's even pickier than than I would be. Yeah, um, but I can see I can see your point on that. Yeah, and so and um, I, I respect that you now love the film as much as I do. No question Having about not it. Not seen it in I have no idea how long, <laughs> like ten years. Yeah, and I've seen it probably in uh, maybe nine <laughs> years ago. But um, okay, so I want to move on. Uh, in the sphere of of talking about the true story and people's opinion on it. Uh, and talking about the politics a little bit, uh, there the film does have some controversy, as Josh mentioned earlier, and uh, probably the key bit of controversy, aside from people saying, "Well, that's not how it actually happened," which, uh, frankly, I don't care about, and I know that some people might find that offensive. Like, well, this, you know, people actually died, people actually, you know, conducted this investigation. You should care. It's like I do care. Write a book about it. Write a book about <laughs> yeah. it. Make I it bet docu- it'll be a make, great book. Yeah, make a documentary about it. I'll I'll be there. And if some and and if a documentarian starts lying, I'll be like, okay, I don't like that at all. But yeah. it's a practical decision. I feel like that's a that's a cheat. Somebody trying to be like, well, people died. <laughs> they didn't die so that they'd be accurately represented in a movie like that. <laughs> yeah. Their death has nothing to do with whether or not the story is told yeah. truthfully. That's yeah. the only reason I'm going to die. <laughs> I've decided. You should in your will. Say who you would like to tell your story. Oh, can I do it? I will. I had I had a I had a dream once where, uh, yeah, where uh, where I I wanted a certain uh, person to make a movie of me, and I was trying to reference them as I was bleeding out. I was trying to reference other movies they'd made, which I realized when I woke up don't exist, <laughs> which is why I couldn't call them to mind in the dream. Um, yeah, I had robbed a bank. I, I deserved it. Oh man. <laughs> I think Michael Mann should make your film. Yeah. Just like Public Enemies, where no one would have any sense of who you were. (laughs) Anyway, so (laughs) moving on. so yeah, the big, uh, the, the other big controversy, probably one that, that's even bigger than the one we've already spoken about, um, is the way the film depicts torture. And uh, people said that, A, th- that basically the film winds up condoning torture because the, the torture of this one character fairly early in the film... Uh, leads to information which leads to more information more information which eventually leads the characters to bin laden and what that communicates to the audience is that torture works mm-hmm. and it and people have taken it inclu- including many politicians including uh, john mccain yeah um so this is not a purely uh you know this is not a party line thing uh mm-hmm. and so people are just offended by that and they say no 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 that's not how torture works uh, you know, you're just as likely to get bad information as good and all that. Um, now, my take on that is that I think the film, again, I think people are imposing their own views on it. And 
they want it to confirm what they think. Now, don't get me wrong. I wonder. I, I find myself wondering. There are probably people out there who are like, "Yeah, see, I told you, torture works." You know, they <laughs> they take it the other way. But I don't think. I think they're wrong too. Mm. Um, anybody who wants to take this film and just say, "Well, clearly, it's saying what I always what I always said." Yeah. Um, I think that's a mistake. And not to mention, I think the film handles it very well. It's very objective. You see that it actually does have a fair amount of uh, impact on the people doing the torturing and certainly the people that are tortured. But also there's a very deliberate scene in which a character is asked what day of the week something is going to happen. And he says a day, but the interrogator gets the feeling he's lying. So he is going to shove him into a box that I would venture to say is too small for a person. And... uh, (laughs) Although I guess the only the only box that's big enough for a person is a casket, so maybe this maybe this whole line of discussion is very dark. But uh, I think a person to fit comfortably because they get him in there. They, oh, they, yeah. absolutely! But you know what? I would venture to say he's not very comfortable. That's right. I think that's mm-hmm. the, that's yeah. The, you can get a person into almost any size of box. Yes. No question about it. Yeah. It just might take a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, they need to. But here's the thing. They need to be comfortable and still alive. Yeah. See, then, then that, that limits your options right yeah. there. Yeah. But uh, and already we're making jokes that I'm sure people will find offensive. But uh, so they're they're shoving this guy in this box, and he obviously does not want to be shoved in this box. And so let's say I don't remember exactly. I think he said Monday, and that's the that's the answer that the guy did not find satisfying. So then the guy so then the guy says Monday again, but then he says Sunday, then he says Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and. What is communicated to me is that this guy so badly does not want to be put in this box. He's saying anything. Mm-hmm. And like, so one could make the argument that, oh, if someone's willing to say anything to keep from being tortured, maybe they're not going to give the most reliable information. And it should be noted that when the time comes and he does give them the information that winds up being reliable, it's when he's not being tortured. Yeah. It's when he's being treated like a person. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, he is being He's still being interrogated, and it's still clear that the people on the other side of the table have the power. And there is the threat of torture. There is, yeah. a, there is that, yes. But, uh, but yeah, and so, I don't know. I, I feel like the film is pretty even-handed about it, and I think it it makes the argument that's like, this just is what, like, they're just as likely to get bad information as good. Mm-hmm. And, in, and they probably got plenty of bad information and good information, and they acted on all of it, and one of them happened to take them where they wanted to go. Well, the movie takes place over the course of, like, ten years. Yeah. yeah. So you, you see a, a long time of all of these processes not working and them not getting enough information. In the case you just mentioned, um, it's he, he doesn't tell them the day. Something occurs, and then the only way that they're able to actually get other useful information out of him is by basically acting like he passed out and did tell them the correct mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. and they were able to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's, it's that manipulation of it um, that is, that's, that's beneficial, but the point still remains their torture of him led to something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that very fact makes somebody, makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you the, the, the specific moment for me that got me, this was one of those, um, am I going to be on board or not on board with this movie? It, it will depend on how this character responds in this situation. It's really early on. And it's when Maya is left alone with uh, with this man who's being tortured. And she has not she, – she's, she's new there mm-hmm. and she hasn't done any of the torturing yet. And you can tell that she's just not 
really comfortable yet. Yeah. And so we as an audience are already thinking, because we've been trained to by all of these sort of easy Hollywood movies that she's not going to like this and she's going to she's going to have heart she's going to be a sympathetic yeah. person and not only is she new but she's also a woman and she's, she's young brain. exactly yeah. so he asks he basically says like you know help please me. help me yeah and her response is you can help yourself by telling us what we need to know yeah. so she despite what she may think about torturing mm-hmm. she basically reinforces it and says like no 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 you're not going to get any help from me. Yeah. And as an audience member, I was like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. Thank goodness we don't have this you know, <laughs> kind-hearted savior who's going to go and change the system and accomplish all these great things with her gung-ho at it. You know, it's no. like... <laughs> Nor do they make her a monster. No. Now, some, some might say that that response is monstrous. But as yeah. far as the way she's played and just the basic line, yeah. it's... Yeah. yeah. And at the time, and certainly at the time, and it's of the time. Yeah. At the time, like, you know, probably around 2005, 2006 is when the torture debate really kicked into gear. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was viewed as an enhanced interrogation technique, and it was viewed as acceptable. Mm -hmm. And that's how she views it. Yeah. Yeah. Josh, do you have anything to throw in? We I knew we do need to move on. Well, I, I mean, I'll say briefly. I, I think I, I think I agree with that interpretation. I, I don't feel like it comes down. Either way, I think it's it's again in sort of the journalistic way, it's presenting something. It's saying this has happened. This it's happened that they've gotten they've tortured people and they've gotten information that has led to good things. Mm-hmm. But well, <laughs> good I guess depends on whose definition of good, but yeah. has led to results anyway. Um, and I mean, I like that it's presenting that and it's kind of saying like you have to decide like are you okay with this? This this is what happens like. Mm-hmm. Th- is that a good result? Is that a bad result? Is that was there a better way? Um, I think when it just presents it and sort of doesn't come down on one side or the other, it just it gives the viewer a chance to sort of think about that and and maybe that's what makes people so uncomfortable because when you leave maybe. it up to them, then maybe the person saying, "Well, it makes torture okay." Maybe what they're saying is they, for a brief moment, understood what could be gained from it. Yeah. And they never wanted to understand that. If, if for a brief second you have to see both sides of the argument in an argument that you want to see as very one-sided and crystal clear and easy to reconcile, that that's uncomfortable. So, Yeah, yeah it, it makes a simple question in their minds. Instead of answering that simple question in the way they want it to be answered, it simply changes the question, which is instead of torture doesn't solve anything, so why do it? It changes it to if torture produces something then what do you think about it yeah, yeah. is it still worth it yeah and, and it, so it's an it's an ends yeah. justifying the means yeah and, it, and uh, it asks a lot of the same questions as munich which is like this yeah. idea it's like is it worth compromising the thing that makes your nation or your culture good and yeah. right is it worth compromising that to to get something good done yeah yeah and exactly. you can consider sort of the the larger question that the film is asking it it even asks sort of us to to examine that instinct for revenge that we have in the first mm-hmm. place of osama bin laden so it's asking yeah. us to to reconsider that question on yeah. how we should feel about that and and what our tactics should be in pursuing that so forcefully yeah and so if it's already get muddying the line on that and saying maybe this is not such a good thing then why would you think that something that helps lead people to that end mm-hmm. would necessarily be 
would necessarily be a good thing anyway. Yeah, it's there's so much going on with the film, and, and I'm not even gonna go too far down the uh, the path of like discussing revenge because one of, and you know what I'll actually, I'll actually use this to transition us into character. Yeah. Um, one of the fascinating things about the character of Maya um, is that she's not perfect at all and she, like there are things that she says and there are motivations and uh <clears throat> that she has that are that make me uncomfortable and i'm mostly mm-hmm. on board with her yeah and it's clear fairly early it's, you know some of her uh associates wind up you know they they die um mm-hmm. as a function of of the job that they're doing and with each passing attack she gets more and more embittered and embittered is the word uh and it it becomes clear over the course of the film, you see her move from justice to vengeance. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a very clear line where she says, like, we're going to smoke. Okay, here's the thing. It's unfortunate that the idea of saying smoke uh, as as a, a euphemism for kill, it's unfortunate that that is as cool as, like, the coolest thing I can think of. <laughs> like, we're going to smoke this guy. Yeah. Um, that aside, uh, there's a scene when she discovers the, the death of, of a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have the exact line in front of me, but she basically says, like, we're going to smoke everybody involved, and then I am going to kill Osama bin Laden. Like, yeah. it is this kind of, it is this hatred. It's not righteousness. It's not even self-righteousness. <laughs> it is hatred. Yeah, and it comes, from, and so at that moment, everything becomes a lot more personal. It's not, yeah. it's not that you know, he did damage to a country and to innocent people and needs to pay the price. It's he hurt me. And yeah. now it's time to, and it really does move from, from the sort of objective determined to do a good job to yeah. that personal quest. Yeah. Like yeah. And that said. will lead us. I won't say it now, but like that'll actually enter into the theme that we will be discussing more overtly uh, in this episode. Can I bring up one more quick point that the, I Go think ahead. is sort of integral to why I think this movie is such a, a balanced perspective. Sure. Um, the way that it depicts all of these other terrorist attacks, um, it shows us because there's there is some a, a lot of violence in the movie, and mm-hmm. when it's an actual attack that actually occurred, it shows us the date, shows us yeah. the specific date, yeah. and then it shows us the incident to the point where, just from a filmmaking perspective, I was started experiencing dread when I saw a specific date because <laughs> you up knew on the something, re- yeah, because you know it's about to get even worse. Mm-hmm. But the one incident they do not show, you only hear it is nine eleven. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that's such. It, it, it really does speak to all the themes of sort of getting us out of just just an American perspective because we have seen that footage already so much. Yeah, but a lot of the attacks that they do depict. I'll be honest. I had forgotten about. Yeah, them. I didn't remember a lot of those, or, or didn't even didn't even know about them. Yeah, and I wonder I wonder how the experience of the, of the film would be for someone who was intimately familiar with all those dates and would know like when you see the date on the screen, you're like, oh, this is the date of, and you know the exact thing. I wonder how much that would change the viewing experience. And there is something to be said that, like, frankly, awful as it may be, it's just like, well, those attacks those attacks didn't happen on American soil, so we uh, we the viewing audience are less inclined. Not 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 inclined, but we're less likely to know them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And I don't think to, to me it didn't seem like they were trying to rub our nose in the fact that we didn't know these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was it was such an awareness yeah. uh, technique for me at least, um, mm-hmm. and I found that really really gripping in a way that yeah. I didn't 
fully realize until I was reflecting on the movie afterwards. And it seems, and it's a respectful choice as well. It's saying like, this is an important day, not merely for uh, these characters, but for what they are trying to do. Yeah. um, And for the people that, you know, for the force, I'm sorry to put it this way, if I offend anybody, but like for the forces of good, this is a bad day, what you're about to see. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's take note of the day. This is not just some random day. It's this day. It's the day that these, these people died. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So I did want to move into, uh, performances, um, and characters. Um, as I said, it's a, it's an ensemble film, but it is, anchored very much by Jessica Chastain. We've already spoken a lot about her, but one of the things that I wanted to go out of my way to say, and we already talked about it a little bit, is that she really has her work cut out for her because not only is she a young woman in a role that seems like it should be played by a grizzled old man, (laughs) but she is also very attractive. And so everything about her seems like she does not belong. And Mm -hmm. by, by... Certainly, the, the the script is there for her, but like by virtue, simply by virtue of the strength of her performance, she has to show I belong here because she is pretty much surrounded by men. Yeah, and she has to be as strong as they are without 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 it seeming as though she wants to sound she wants to seem as strong. It would have been easy for her performance to kind of have this quality of like. Not like where it, she has to put up a veneer to yeah, like to she has seem to prove tough enough. Yeah, yeah, like she proves it pretty early, and then she's just there. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like she proves it in a way that, in the reality of the film, seems like it's just because she does belong. Like yeah. she she starts talking with him right away. Like she knows her stuff. She knows what's going on, and she's just she's just jumping into it. And she seems it seems more yeah. like yeah. she's just immediately acclimating herself to situ- a, a situation that she makes herself feel comfortable in and less that she's forcing her way into a place where she doesn't belong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted to, so that's the thing is like, I, I think, I think, uh, her performance in take shelter reminds me kind of of this. There's a, there's a scene where things have taken a bad turn Mm -hmm. and then she talks to her husband and says, this is how it's going to be. But she's saying it first off with a great deal of love, but also there is a no nonsense like, yeah, and and it's when you start to see her character as a different thing. An mm. incredible. She has a she as an actress has an inner strength that does not come out very often. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it, it's definitely there. Like yeah. it's one of the, it sounds strange, but part of, like if they ever remade Alien, she'd make a great Ripley. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I can see that in, in this movie, I will tell you, I believe she could breathe fire. <laughs> like in, in some of those scenes, there's a scene that has my favorite line of the movie, mm-hmm. and it's just one that like I just wanted to like stand up and scream because it was so because it was so good. But unfortunately, it's a, a pretty severe curse. Yeah. Uh, so I won't. So I won't repeat it. Um, but she has some of those scenes that are just like she shows such strength and mm-hmm. such resolve. Even sort of, it, it seems like in opposition to people who are kind of on her side. Yeah. yeah. Which is one of the wonderful <laughs> complex things about the character. Yeah. 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 And so. Um, so I wanted to move on and just ma- mention a couple of other uh, performances. Uh, the acting is is good all around. So I'll briefly mention Kyle Chandler's in it, Stephen Delane, Mark Strong, all of which are are very very good. They managed it because when you look at it, I've talked on on the show about uh, Aaron Brockovich syndrome, mm-hmm. where other characters in the film have read the script, realize they're not the lead, and so they will just sort of 
play the part that they clearly, <laughs> which is like, okay, I exist only in relation to this person. Uh-huh. Um, Just back away and let things let things right. go. And I think I think the characters are written better than that, but I think they're certainly mm. played better than that. These are oh, characters yeah. that existed. They, they exist when Maya's not on screen. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, people like a Mark Strong, uh, Stephen Delane, Kyle Chandler do a good job with that. Kyle uh, Chandler was in one other movie this year, that year, which was Argo, in which he also played a like an intelligence man, yeah. American intelligence yeah. man, which was weird. He, he does kind of have... And and you know when you look at like uh, Friday Night Lights and you look at something like a um, like a Super Eight, mm. he's very good at conveying uh, like an authority figure. Yeah, yeah. Who maybe is also eh, kind of, not that they're unreliable, but they're still very human. They mm-hmm. they they have authority, but yeah. maybe they're not. They can't execute everything perfectly. Um, I also wanted to mention. Um, Real quick, James Gandolfini, who plays the CIA director, who the character is only ever referred to as CIA director, but it's Leon Panetta. Um, and he's uh, who went on to, after this whole affair, the uh, he went on to become the uh, Secretary of Defense. Um, and I like his performance. He's not in it very much. But he, when he comes into the room, and yes, James Gandolfini is a very imposing figure. He's a but, presence. But he's also very quiet. Mm-hmm. And he just... It's one of the. I, I I tend to like it when a car- when an actor knows that like okay I don't need to be big and blustery, the like I'll leave that to I'll leave, I'll leave it to the other actors. I mentioned this sort of a, a couple weeks ago when talking about Sidney Greenstreet and the Maltese Falcon. Oh yeah, like he doesn't have to play that he's dangerous. He just is, <laughs> and that's enough. Just that knowledge, yeah. knowing that he has the authority, is fine. Um, and then lastly, I did want to talk about Jason Clark, who I think who plays uh, the character of Dan, mm. who if there is a He's not a lead, certainly. He's definitely a supporting, but he he is sort of the breakout from the uh, from the ensemble, yeah. aside from Maya. And uh, I know him from the the short lived show uh, Brotherhood on Showtime, and I think he's amazing. And I think his character is key in a lot of ways because mm. we have to see that this job and this life has it has an impact on people other than maya and we see it from him yeah and he is like chief and t- let's say interrogator uh <laughs> he's 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 boss torture he's bought yeah and so and he is totally committed to it but like you see over that you just see him get more and more tired and you don't expect it. You expect him to be kind of tough as nails. And he is when he needs to be. But when you see, you see him on his off time, it's just like, and it's getting to him. Mm. And it's such a great performance because it's not overly telegraphed at any given time. Yeah. And he, his character actually does undergo a pretty, a pretty large and substantial change mm-hmm. from when he is sort of in the trenches to when he's back in uh, Washington. Mm. And uh, I think we've, I can't remember if we've talked about this, Josh, but I think Tyler, you and I have talked about how if they had given him basically like one two minute scene that was like really solid and just about him, yeah. then you've got a supporting actor nomination. Oh, no yeah, question. Yeah, but, yeah, but the yeah. movie's not kind of interested in those kind of Yeah, it, it's things. not thinking of, a, of the movie in those terms, which yeah. is good, yeah. I think. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> yeah, like he, I mean, he's still has a part to play in Washington, but it's not nearly as key. Yeah. And so, you know, so they, they relegate him to the, what he actually does. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I'm fine with that. Um, I want to okay. talk about uh, Jessica Chastain a little bit more okay. and sort of the other characters in relation to her, uh, as opposed to some of those other movies you mentioned, like right. Aaron Brockovich, or even you think of the board, sort of the, the Washington, the DC sort of like, uh, 
inside baseball scenes where everyone's around like a, a board table talking mm-hmm. about the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, you think of the scenes in this where everybody has a compelling perspective, and then you think of Argo where it's so clearly like we got to give Affleck that great one-liner to get out of the yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's there's a moment where. Maya has come back to to Washington because now there are threats on her life. Um, And so she just cannot stay overseas. Um, And so she's there, but she wants this mission to keep moving forward. So she starts writing the number of days it's been since they last had a meeting about it on Mark Strong's window. Mm -hmm. And she does this, and she gets more and more emphatic each time. Mm And we are on her side. I'm rooting for her to get what she wants to get this mission. But there's this great little moment when uh, she does that and you just see Mark Strong just looking at it like, yeah, I know. And she walks away and someone says like, she does that every day. And he goes, yeah, it's her against the world. Mm -hmm. And that little line just Mm -hmm. gives you a little insight into his exasperation. And it just shows that she does not understand either everything that is going into this mission and this operation. Right. She's got such a singularity of focus on this one part of it that it it almost eclipses everything else. And I think one of the, and this, this comes down to the writing because Mark Strong's character, there are not a lot of characters that are allowed scenes by on their own. Mm -hmm. He is allowed a couple Mm -hmm. in which he is fighting for her. And that's the thing. A lesser script would have been content to have him just be, just this bureaucratic guy that yeah. doesn't understand. <laughs> and speaking of lesser scripts, that's that's kind of what happens in Argo. I mean, it's it's Ben Affleck versus a bunch of other people who don't yeah. agree with Ben Affleck. And I feel like yeah. that's not as good writing to just have... It's not as complex, at least, to, to have a bunch of people. You've got the bad guys in the politics, and then you've got the one person who gets it and has to yeah. convince everybody yeah. else. Boy, I like that this is now an Argo track. Let's just <laughs> let's get into it. But it's a lot bad more... thing about Argo. That's, <laughs> that's the theme we're getting to, by the way. It's that's not the companion It's film. nothing Christian. <laughs> but it's so much more nuanced than that, that like even in those board scenes you were talking about, like you can see that everyone has a valid point, and even when we agree with her, like that, I love that moment where she's talking about the 100%. Like, I, yeah, I love that yeah. scene. But... You can still you can still kind of get what the other guys are saying, like and they're even when uh, Mark Strong has that uh, has that scene with I forget the other politician Stephen Delane yeah, yeah they have that little they have a, kind of a little bit of a tiff there and both of them kind of have a point you know yeah. like uh, so you, and, you yeah, can understand about risk assessment and exactly all that, yeah. and so you can understand where everyone's coming from and maybe it, it, that that's the point I think when you can say it's easy for us to say we're rooting for her because we know how it ends. Like mm-hmm. we know what's going to happen. So we want, we want her to do that. But if that's not, you know, if that's not the result, here's all these other people that have a, a very valid point. Yeah. You know? And, and it also goes to, and so I guess we're talking about the script a little bit now and I won't focus too much on it though. It is a, a very great script. Um, I actually found the script online and kind of scan, uh, skimmed through it, uh, yesterday and it, it's such a great script. Um, but there's a line in there that I really like, and it's kind of a laugh line, and it's given to James Gandolfini, and it's after uh, a meeting in which... The 100% meeting. Yeah, yeah. The, the 100% meeting where Maya, who is who really should not be speaking directly to the CIA <laughs> director, uh, much less out of turn in a meeting with several other uh, higher-ups. Um, but anyway, so uh, the director is uh, walking to the elevator with his you know aide, his, his assistant, and he says, what do you think of her? And he says, I think she's smart. There's an expletive in there. But he's like, I think she's smart. And then there's this nice beat. And this is a great 
great delivery by James Gandolfini who says, we're all smart, John. Yeah. And the idea <laughs> is this – and stuff like that illustrates that, like, you know, there are the characters that we, maybe we don't like as much because maybe they're a little bit opposed to Maya or maybe they're not moving fast enough. Yeah. But they're all smart. She's no smarter than anybody else. Yeah. She's just more She's more willing to act on these things and maybe they're not. There's yeah. a key scene where, you know, it's the 100% scene where characters are talking about how, how certain they are of things. Jason Clark, a character that we like – says he's 60% sure and and it's a soft 60. Yeah. Mm. And like and she gives him this glare and he looks back like I'm not selling you out. I'm giving my opinion. Yeah. yeah. And my opinion is fairly educated. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's just this it's, it's no less valid. Yeah. Everybody in the film is a person that you like and even if you don't like them you at least understand that they're still there for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Like you know, it, it, it's easy to talk about like politics in Washington. It's like ah, there are some people who they've you know they they come from a, a certain family, and so that they just kind of they were born into this thing. You're not born into the CIA. You're not like you, yeah. you get higher up if you're good at what you do. And and when he says we're all smart, he's saying we are all good at this. Yeah. <laughs> By saying she's smart, you're not really differentiating her from anyone else. Yeah. Um. It's a and there and there's other aspects to it as well. And it's also going back to that idea that that. This movie is not just hell bent on her perspective, right? Mm. You know, where where a much lesser film would have been. It yeah. really is about trying to get us to think about all of these things, and it goes back to kind of that question that the movie's not just going to tell one particular side what it wants to hear, mm-hmm. and it's making them think about the fact that oh, there's someone who disagrees with me who's just as smart as I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to move on to just the general uh, storytelling style of the film, um, and we'll touch on this briefly because we're we're getting a little long. Um, but uh, so we've talked about the the screenplay already. I like the way it's structured. I think it's pretty solid. Um, but uh, you know, and one of the things that I mentioned is that the the trailer and stuff made me think that this was mostly going to be about the raid. Yeah. Um, mm. And a lot of time is given to the raid, but. I think it's I think it's great. I think it was such a fascinating choice by Mark Bull to to just show just this. First off, like that is a bit, that's a very ambitious thing is to show years worth of an investigation. Yeah, yeah. like that. It's you know only a handful of movies do that, and even fewer of them do that do it well. And so, um, so I don't know. It's just I applaud him doing it, and he does it very, and he. He really pulls it off, and there's the sequence at the end because the raid is very prominently featured and shown. So yeah, it's just it's an oddly structured film because when you think about it, the third act is almost entirely taken up by the raid, and we haven't really seen anything like that before. And so, to a certain extent, I found it a little jarring. Part of me feels like maybe it could be a little shorter, but at the same time, when you think about it. It, the investigation is shown fairly thoroughly, so why wouldn't they show this as thoroughly? Yeah, and so there's one sequence that I think kind of alludes to their handling of it, and mm-hmm. that's when they're looking for uh, Abu Ahmed mm-hmm. uh, and him on the phone, because mm-hmm. that sequence doesn't really involve Maya either, right? Um, so that's the only thing I can point to where it's like sort of gets out into the field, if you will, where yeah. she doesn't isn't a part of it. Yeah, and so it's uh, so it's weird. Like I'm going to address uh, a uh, a con- an objection that, to my knowledge, nobody except me has. 
So, uh, and it's not even so much an objection, but just like part of me feel, feels like it's like, oh, but she's not really a part of that scene. Why is it going on so long? But as time has gone on, it's like, well, first off, it's it's done so well that who am I? I'm not going to complain. You're talking about the raid? The raid. Yeah. yeah. Um, it like, it's done so well that I'm not going to complain. It's amazing filmmaking uh, handled with, uh, I mean, it's, I, I've never been involved in a raid like that. Or let's say any raids. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know of. That I know of. Am I right, guys? Um, no, you're no, you're not. I am not correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you look at that, and I know it's kind of a silly thing to say, but you look at that, and it's like, well, that just has to be how it is. It's just done so professionally, like, and characters are quiet, but they're thorough, and they get stuff done. Yeah. And, and just taking as long as as it takes gives you an appreciation to like okay there are a lot of different aspects to this investigation yeah. and some of it involves being at a computer some of it involves like talking to people and some of it involves busting down doors and yeah. this is what it, and at the end this is what it was always going to be is this thing right here and that's that's just a sequence that's hard to direct in general because mm-hmm. you have something happening in the dark with nearly no dialogue in a location that we're not familiar with because we've never been able to get inside it the same way yeah. that they haven't been able to so to be it to be able to direct that in such a way that we understand what's happening that tension builds and like we can follow it that's that's good directing yeah yeah that is that is a that is a brilliant piece of filmmaking like i i can't imagine the skill that in just planning that and and executing that no no pun intended Mm. so perfectly it's so methodical and when you think about it the fact that we know how it ends could undercut the tension Mm -hmm. but what what she manages to do and i and i don't even know how she does it what Catherine Bigelow manages to do is take our expectation and our knowledge of what is there and transform it into the soldier's expectation of what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So that it's just like, it's like with each, and maybe that's one of the, that's maybe by allowing as much time as she does, maybe that's part of it is like it all, like our, our knowledge of what's to come becomes anticipation. And in that sense, we become just as anticipatory as Maya or the soldiers. And so with each level, and they're getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer, it's like, come on, here we go, come on. Like, and you, like, you're anticipating because you know what's going to happen. But uh, I don't know, it's, she still finds a way of putting you in the same emotional state as the characters, but yeah. she goes, like, in it, she goes in through like another door. Yeah. And so it's just such well, a think about your expectations of a sequence like that. I mean, like I can't, I can't help but think <laughs> of like a modern warfare video game. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, or just like, I, I think of like, Oh, we're going to get the raid, which is going to be what? Three minutes of just wall to wall action. Right. And no, it's quiet mm-hmm. and they're moving deliberately and doing things that take time to, pull off the charges to put on the doors and then making sure everyone's back. Like there's mm. so much yeah. um for lack of a better word, business mm-hmm. that goes yeah. into it that, that each of the um that the special ops team has to do and accomplish just to do something as simple as get inside a door. Yeah. In a way, and this may sound kind of strange, it almost feels like a uh I want to make sure I've a uh, Jean Pierre Melville Oh yeah. yeah, it feels like yeah. yeah, it feels like uh, a great the Circle Rouge and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, especially because it's quiet and just yes. every yeah. little thing that needs to be done and taking and just such an attention to detail. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, and just 
and the film just i mean the film's two and a half hours and it doesn't feel like it it just moves so well i did not feel it at any point and i don't know it's just uh it's just such a beautifully directed film and i it, it's a shame that she wasn't nominated she absolutely deserved to be yeah. um you know i like silver linings playbook I don't think David O. Russell should have been nominated. I liked Beast of the Southern, Beast of the Southern Wild, pardon me. <clears throat> but I don't know if Ben Zeitlin, like I don't, I'm not sure if he deserved to be nominated. What's the like, lead actress at that movie, Tyler? Quvenjane Wallace. Hey, good job. <laughs> yeah, well see that one I got. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and so, um, but that's just because I was I spent so long, so much time discussing that Onion tweet. Um, uh-huh. But anyway, so. Uh, so it, it's just one. So I, I wonder, like, why was she not nominated? And I guess it could be a number of things, but I do think that, like, maybe it was political. Maybe it was, uh, and I mean, yeah. actually political yeah, this yeah. time. Mm-hmm. People didn't like the controversy. They didn't like what the uh, what the film might have actually been saying. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I think it could have been that. Yeah. Well, let me address real quick because I have heard people criticize the movie because Maya is not involved in the end. Hmm. Because what you what you do have is. <clears throat> you're, you're essentially taking the bat out of your strongest hitter mm-hmm. and your lead character and you're set you're sidelining the heart of your movie um to 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 show this sequence and i think it is so deliberate and so brilliant a choice to follow through with that i think it is intentional and i think it it serves to amplify the themes that we're going to be talking about a little bit later mm-hmm. and and that's the sequence i point to that here's how that's how i really arrived at how strongly i think the movie is communicating its its theme is because of that sequence because of her absence Mm -hmm. and because of what that means to the themes that it's exploring yeah and then when they finally do get him and then they bring the body back it's such a such an amazing sequence when she you know mission accomplished and then it just takes a nice moment to just she is slowly walking up to the body bag, this symbol of what she has been working for for the last, I think, eight years. Yeah. And just And there guess it who is. else is paying attention to the body bag? No one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like this one is just is just for her. And it's and it's weird. It's like she it's such a strange moment because like and she plays it beautifully, like there she's strangely emotional about it and just I don't know, I can't it's that that scene is for some that sequence within that scene is so i don't know transcendent somehow and it's and it's a function of the music which i think was great as well um and just the way it's cut together the cinematography the fact that nobody else is paying attention and and the performance and it's just such a it's like the film in microcosm it's just every aspect of it is put together well and it's not particularly showy, and it's just, I don't know, but it's still incredibly effective. Mm. Yeah. So, all right. Do we have anything else we wa- we would like to talk about as far as uh, Catherine Bigelow's direction? It's unfortunate that we kind of focused in on uh, The Raid as, like, the best example of it, but maybe that's sort of the film. That's, as far as what she did as a director, maybe that's the film Microcosm. Attention to detail, deliberate pacing. You're on the edge of your seat the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, Okay. So, we'll bring up briefly the companion film, and then we'll tie all this together with uh, some of the, the themes that Jason was, was uh, alluding to earlier. So, um, 
and we're not going to talk a lot about it, but uh, the companion film is a film from uh, 2001, and it's called The Pledge, and is it is directed by Sean Penn based on a uh, novel by... Oh, shoot. There's a lot of names here. Okay. Written by Jerzy uh, Kromolowski and Mary Olson Kromolowski, and based on the book by Friedrich Durenmatt. So, a lot of names there that I... Uh, so, with a lot of letters. A lot of letters in those names. Um, so I saw this film in the theater, and it is—it's uh, a procedural. It's a, uh, but not, not quite as thorough as uh, as a Zero Dark Thirty, um, in which a uh, little girl is is murdered, and uh, <coughs> excuse me, and a police officer, uh, a soon to be retired detective played by Jack Nicholson, is investigating, and he and the police department think they found the guy, but he's starting to think maybe it isn't the guy. And so he then just devotes his life. Now he's retired, but he devotes his life to like actually figuring out who did this because he made a promise to the to the little girl's mother. Um, so obviously, you know, from a story standpoint, the parallels are obvious. You know, it's one man who, mm-hmm. in now, admittedly, there are a lot of characters who are just doubting him the whole time. So that in many ways, they are kind of actively working against him. Uh, mm-hmm. And the characters in Zero Dark Thirty are not doing that. But it's it's really just this one guy against the world, quite literally, mm-hmm. yeah. and with a very specific goal in mind. Uh, and I have not seen it in a number of years. You guys saw it very recently, but I remember liking it a lot, as one would expect from a Sean Penn-directed film. It's very heavy-handed at times. Uh, but it is an, more than anything, it's an actor's movie. It's a wonderful performance by Jack Nicholson and one that people don't seem to really know know about. Um, but it's a wonderful ensemble cast as well. You got Robin Wright, Patricia Clarkson, pardon me, at the time, Robin Wright Penn, Patricia Clarkson, Benicio Del Toro, Helen Mirren, Tom Noonan, Mickey Rourke, uh, Harry Dean Stanton's in there. Vanessa Redgrave's in there. Vanessa Redgrave. Redgrave. It's just a, uh, Aaron Eckhart's in there, Aaron Sam Shepard. It's it's crazy how many people are it's in this It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and each one is great. Uh, you know, each each actor is given a usually like one scene that is just amazing. There is a scene specifically in which Mickey Rourke plays the grieving father of a young girl who had died, who was killed like previous to this. She's just missing. She's missing. She's killed. Yes. So he's uh, got this, this horrible sense of possibility. Yeah. That she's still out there. Yeah. But, but this, yeah, like He's sure that he could that she's probably dead. Yeah. But of course, you never quite know. So there's just enough hope there to drive you insane. Yeah. Um, like Dark Knight Rises. Oh, Josh hasn't seen it. Spoilers. That's all right. So anyway, Bruce Wayne's daughter is yeah. kidnapped. <laughs> yes. By Mickey Rourke <laughs> right. to get back. He's playing Jack Nicholson from the pledge. Okay. Yes. It's a very as complex. the penguin. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so. That took a strange turn. Um, oh, it just took a strange turn there. Just now. <laughs> just now. Okay. Um, the rest of it, I was I was on board. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. So it's it's not a great film. It's not a perfect film. But the actors really, I think, carry it, and the performances. And there's enough there's enough with the story that you're just in, inherently, or at least I was inherently, just invested in it. And I want I want the main character to get what he is is striving for like i want justice to happen and i Mm -hmm. want but what's interesting and this will get to the the theme in a moment but um it's interesting like i want justice but i also realize how much the character has invested himself personally in it so i want i want 
him to find the real killer just as much for his own closure as actual justice. Right. Mm-hmm. And well, that goes back to the Mickey Rourke character. He has mm-hmm. no closure. Exactly. On, mm-hmm. on his particular, which makes it so, um, just so traumatic for him. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is probably meant to be some sort of foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, you guys have both seen it. Josh for the first time, Jason for the first time in a number of years. Since, since he, I think we saw it in theaters. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so it's very fresh in your guys' minds. What did, it, just really briefly, what did you guys think of it? We'll go with Josh first. I what I liked about it was the the aspect of the story where um, Jack Nicholson, in being so committed to honoring his pledge to this woman, uh, he puts other people in danger and doesn't realize how much he's doing that mm-hmm. um, uh, in this in, in his mind in the service of doing justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part of it was interesting to me. I think some, I think by and large the performances are good. Uh, I, I dislike the directing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've, I said before when we talked about into the wild, I, I don't think I like Sean Penn as a director and, uh, now having seen this, I, I think I confirm, confirm I do not like Sean Penn as a director. Don, I, I think you might actually enjoy the crossing guard, uh, which really? he also did with Jack Nicholson. And I, I get the feeling like, because I remember that one being pretty pared down. It was not; it's not yeah. particularly ornate. And I think it's maybe a, as he went on as a director, he got a little bit more ambitious. Maybe it's it's it feels to me like a like he got a film school kid and gave him twenty million dollars, and he's like, let's put everything on a crane, let's put everything like moving around like crazy for no reason, let's put weird filters on things and speed things up. And he he doesn't know how to transition between scenes either. Mm-hmm. Um, which it, it's not as bad in Into the Wild, but I do remember it then. There's all these sequences that. Are almost like music videos, and it's the same thing. In in uh, those are beautiful scenes. In the pl- <laughs> whatever you say, but in the pledge, there's all these sequences where it's like you have a scene, and then Sean Penn's like, "Well, how do I get us to the next scene? Let's do a three minute music montage with the girl on a swing, or with people driving around in cars." And it's like it, it's a lot of filler in the movie that way, I think. But um, yeah, that was what I didn't like about it. But I did like I didn't I do like some of the themes that connect these two movies together, and, and again the performances, especially Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I mostly agree. It's a, it's a pretty weak movie visually. Um, much much precisely more I, because it's trying so hard to it, be it really strong. Is. Yeah, it's I mean the the visual style is, is really does fluctuate from scene to scene. There seems to be no cohesion to it. Even uh, kind of like we were talking off mic. Uh, I think he was trying to get inside the the mind of of his lead character and try to evoke uh, sort of the scattered nature of it. But what he ended up doing was was just having a a tonally inconsistent film um, visually. Mm-hmm. So he's a, I, I think he's a poor visual directing. Although I I love all the visual directing in Into the Wild, uh, but I haven't seen that since theaters. That was two thousand seven. Mm. I saw um, it fairly recently. I still I still like that movie. Yeah, Not I, I don't love it, but I like it quite a and bit. And I I loved it at the time. Mm-hmm. So so and it's still. I mean it's it remains very fresh in my mind. I so um, so I don't know how I'd respond to that if I if I revisit it. But I do think there's a lot of similarities thematically between those two films Mm. in terms of a character with one sort of obsessive goal that is going to their their accomplishment of that is going to be to the detriment of a lot of other people Mm -hmm. um that we come to care about during the course of the film i also thought of the film that he starred in the assassination of richard nixon Mm -hmm. um which i think is is certainly applicable um by the coward robert ford by the coward (laughs) henry ford i think it was yes yes um Anyway, so, 
But in terms of his direction of actors, it is phenomenal. You talked about the Mickey Rourke scene, the Patricia Clarkson scene. We we really get a sense of why he would commit to this pledge, mm-hmm. um, which only makes it more tragic when things unfold the way they do. Yeah, um, because you really are so completely on board with Patricia Clarkson's grieving mother, Mickey Rourke's grieving father. Yeah, um, and the the tone of the acting is so perfectly consistent yeah um the 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 horrible way benicio del toro's character is treated yeah we are we are so totally on board with nicholson's character and because we believe he's right then we that invests us more because we want to be sort of told that we're right we want to we want to make sure that we were following the right guy and that we get who you know we, we we see the justice um you know, carry, carried out because yeah. we're so sure we're as sure as he is yeah. that they got the wrong guy. Which, which is another that's another thing I kind of didn't like about it was the ending because I think the movie wants to give us that because it it does. I don't know how much I'm going to do spoilers. It doesn't matter. Um, Five people saw the movie. Yeah, three <laughs> okay. of them are in this room. <laughs> so I'll say spoilers to those other two people. But um, I think. Sean Penn as a filmmaker recognized that we want to know that he was chasing the wrong man or mm-hmm. sorry he was chasing the right man and kind of gives us that but the character doesn't get that closure and I almost yeah. wish the, the film didn't give us the closure in the same way yeah uh, in discussing this with somebody uh, at church today in fact um, I talked about uh, what this episode was going to be and he, he made a suggestion for a companion film that I think that, that had occurred to me uh, but I, I wanted to I was like, ah, I feel like I'm gonna. I'll save that as a companion film for something, <laughs> something that might come down the pike. And it was uh, the French Connection, um, oh. which also, which does not necessarily have that sense of closure um, for the character or for the audience, mm-hmm. um, but still has that kind of that kind of obsession. But yeah. uh, but I wanted something a little bit, in some ways, a little bit more clear cut as far as where the character winds up emotionally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think it's a nice companion film as well because you've got something that is so. Both films do follow one person primarily, but in the case of Zero Dark Thirty, that person has such a um, is is such a metaphor for sort of the national psyche at mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this really is a small, intimate film. So you've got yeah. Zero Dark Thirty being this literally global tale, and then this is just you know the tale of uh, a couple small towns in Nevada. Yeah, um, and so I think that is nice because there's a lot of th- there there is so much overlap thematically. Um, that it does it does broaden the idea of of how far reaching this theme theme is. Yeah. Mm. By and large, would you guys uh, recommend the pledge to people if they asked? Mm. I would, but with a you know with a stipulation. It's like there are some amazing performances, and that's if you like that, then that's what you will. There's, then I, I highly recommend it. I, I would. I would. It would depend on how many movies the person had seen. I would no. recommend so many other Nicholson performances first, or even movies about this theme first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend about Schmidt first because it's mm-hmm. a similar character who's at who's reached retirement. And it's the, the next year. Yeah. For in yeah, about that's Schmitt. right. Yeah. Um, a person who's reached retirement and still hasn't found any any meaning in their lives, at least not like they thought they were going to. So I'd. Mm-hmm. I'd Probably go those films a lot sooner. Yeah, mm-hmm. and into the wild. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I probably really. and I'd probably recommend the Crossing Guard over this as well. Yeah. Another wonderful Nicholson performance with uh, uh, David Morris is in it as well, and he's great. Um, but yeah, I, I'd probably recommend it for like a 
somebody who because it's just it's great acting all around and like that Mickey Rourke performance is, is amazing Patricia Clarks and I like Helen Mirren's performance um, but of course and if you're a Nicholson completist you need to see oh, yeah. it yeah, like, yeah, yeah definitely it's, it's wonderful especially for people because there are a lot of people that say like ah Nicholson all he ever does is play himself it's like well okay watch Ironweed watch about Schmidt Hoffa um, and then probably this as well, where he's nothing. Yeah. He's not doing anything remarkably different than as far as his mannerisms. But man, he's miles away from as good as it gets. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, okay. So as far as thematically, um, and I want to try and maybe try, try to get this done in the next ten fifteen minutes. We'll see how it goes. Um, or or four minutes. We could try to get it done in four <laughs> minutes. Um, I give you two and a half. Oh my. Oop. But because uh, I have a really good joke to wrap us up, it's, it's kind of a long joke, if you know what I mean. Okay, fair enough. Um, I'm gonna start the joke now. Here we go. The punchline is the aristocrats, <laughs> but there's a lot of setup there, um, and involves Osama bin Laden. And um, and anyway, so um, so yeah, uh, so Zero Dark Thirty obviously um, ends with uh, Osama bin Laden being killed. And Maya has, in many ways, gotten what she wanted. But then there's uh, just a gorgeous, beautiful scene. It's the last scene of the film in which she is on a plane, uh, a military plane, and she's the only person on the on the charter. Charter? Is that the word? Why not? There's a, there's a, there's name a word for, for like the man, manifest? Manifest. There that's the one. Thank you. And so basically it's a flight just for her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the pilot is saying like, all right, well, where do you want to go? And it's a nice moment because she does not answer. Instead, she just sits there and her her eyes start to well up with tears. And there's a moment of like where she she has a slight smile, but the smile fades. And it's this weird moment of like one relief for a moment because she no longer has this one thing that she's been chasing it's done so there's a, a, a small amount of relief but then it quickly turns into what I will uh, I use the term a lot but what I will describe as melancholy um, it, it has a strange it ends on an ambig- an, an emotionally ambiguous note um, <clears throat> it does not end with celebration uh, it ends with being quiet and it reminds me of a, of a line from the movie Mother Night, which I assume is in the book as well, in which Nick Nolte plays a character who is standing in the middle of New York and people are walking around and he's just standing, just staring straight ahead. He's not going anywhere. And then after a number of hours, a cop comes up and says like, okay, you got to move along. And in the narration, uh, Nick Nolte's character says, it's not fear that paralyzed me. It's not this or that. He says, what kept me from moving is that I had absolutely no reason to move in any direction. And it's such a, it's such a weird idea mm-hmm. um, that like, well, I could go it's this a nice way. nice little Vonnegut. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's incredibly, it's more than depressing. It's like existentially horrifying. <laughs> That's Vonnegut. Yeah. And so, uh, so it remind that last scene reminded me of that, that it's like, yeah. you can go anywhere. Okay. I have no reason to go anywhere. I'm mm-hmm. done. My reason for existing is done. And, uh, I will say a quick, uh, exchange from the film in which uh uh james gandolfini the cia cia director uh sees maya in the uh cafeteria and he says how long have you worked for the cia and she says 12 years i was recruited out of high school he says do you know why we did that she says i don't think i can answer that question sir i don't think i'm allowed to answer and he says what 
well, what else have you done for us besides Bin Laden? She says, nothing. I've done nothing else. And she says it with with a lot of intensity. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> to the point where he's almost a little bit back on his heels. And then he <laughs> says, well, you certainly have a flair for it. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amusing scene, but of course it, it's... I mean, that is her character. She's yeah. done nothing else. This is what she does. Yeah. By the way, you have two other people who've acted here. I don't understand why we didn't do a little. Yeah, yeah, we could have. Here, I'm sorry. Can I do you, it. Can one of you do a James Gandolfini? Start with breathing out the nose, and you'll find it. <laughs> so what have you done for us? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so that is the character. I mean, yeah, that's, that's it, the key to. Yeah. That's one of the, I think, two really character insights we, we get through the yeah. film and that's totally yeah. enough yeah you can you can understand the the main focus of her character from that scene yeah she does mm. not need to keep declaring her motivation yeah. but like yeah. between that and the moment when she makes it personal and she and like we said earlier like she it's no longer justice it's revenge and revenge is a very personal thing i have been personally wronged now yeah. and at that moment she has like this is who she is. She is. It doesn't matter who she. She doesn't have any friends. That that has been discussed yeah. as well. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have any hobbies. She has this. This is who she is. And so, at the end, she gets what she wants. Yeah. So now, who is she? Mm-hmm. And therein mm-hmm. lay the the theme that we're discussing. Yeah. And um, both films, both this and and um, the pledge, end with a character alone. Yeah. Thinking. Yeah. Um, it also calls to mind like the end of Up in the Air. Yep. Um, and yeah, sort, of, yeah. sort of a, re- uh, a a reversal of the end of Michael Clayton, where for the mm-hmm. first char- for, for the first time this character is is comfortable with who he is and and seems to like who he is again. Mm. Uh, and this is just someone who has lost their identity. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, lots of good movies we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So the end of the pledge, and I apologize for spoiling it for people that uh, maybe haven't seen it, but uh, the end of the pledge is that, as Josh mentioned, uh, we are shown that indeed Jack Nicholson is right, that it was the wrong guy. Unfortunately, he, the character, has never allowed that payoff. Yeah. And eventually he is faced with, as Josh mentioned earlier, that like he has put other people in danger to prove what he wants to prove. Yeah. Uh, and then that bites him, uh, and he eventually is alone and he is drinking a lot and he basically is just muttering to himself and you get the idea that it's driven him crazy it's driven him crazy and because he's never had that closure he's been following this thing and it will never it will never end yeah and what and the minute i saw zero dark 30 and i was walking out of the theater my my wife asked me what i thought of it and i said i loved it we should do more than one lesson about it and the pledge should be the companion film. Like, I knew it immediately. Because, really, there's not that much separating Maya at the end of Zero Dark Thirty and the character Jerry Black at the end of the pledge. It's, it's like, well, Robert one... Robert Downey Jr.'s character from Zodiac. Oh, no question yeah. about it. Absolutely. And just... Except she achieved her goal and he did not. Yeah. So why are, why are why they are not they that different? Why the same place? Why isn't she... Why isn't she so much happier than he is. <laughs> and so that goes to, to what, what we'll be talking about. And I have a number of things that I'm going to be reading. But basically, uh, obviously, the, the theme that we'll be talking about is, is this idea of these goals that we put in front of us. And if only we achieve that, 
then we will be happy. Then will we be we will be satisfied. Then everything will come together, and we will be complete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would venture to say nine times out of the out of ten, we don't achieve it, mm-hmm. and so we wind up insane. Not maybe <laughs> not literally, but we wind up probably about as emotionally happy as Jack Nicholson. <laughs> or we do achieve it, and then we realize. Oh, this did not give me what I wanted. Yeah. And I, Jason, y- like years ago, back when you wrote for the website, mm-hmm. um, you wrote a blog that I think was simply titled uh, The Culture of Goal. Yeah. And I remember, and I'll link to it in the in the show notes, but it's a very good blog and it deals with this, this idea of, you know, the obvious imagery is the carrot and the stick, the thing yeah. that keeps you moving forward all the time. Yeah. And, and in that blog post, I focused on one of... Uh, I think it's your favorite book. It's my favorite book, uh, the the um, the monologue in Infinite Jest, where this guy is watching this tennis practice and he's he's talk, which is all these adolescents uh, playing tennis, and they're at this tennis academy, and this sort of instructor is explaining to this person what's going to happen to these people, even if they achieve all their goals. And one <laughs> is, I think, the syndrome of the endless party, in which they're so ecstatic that they achieved their goal that. Um, you know that they're just gonna they're gonna throw it away because and not hang on to it for very long because they just celebrate too hard. Mm-hmm. And the other one is that like they realize that achieving their goal did not change who they were. Did not yeah. I think it even says did not save them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really and I know this is this is so completely true for me. Um, I look at the goals I set as if as if like you said Tyler, I'm gonna be complete. When X is completed, when yeah. I do this, that will that will mean completion of my life. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I think everybody probably does it. I know that I do it a lot um, with a number of things, and I'll I'll go through the list really quick. Um, not all of it, every uh, obviously, but uh, like so. I'm I'm kind of overweight, uh, not as much as I used to be, but I would just, and I always have been like. I don't think there's ever been a time in my life when I have not, when I've been like thin. And so in my mind, if I get thin, then I will no longer feel bad about myself physically. Surely once I get thin, then I'll feel great. Never mind the fact that I'll, I, I all like I, I've lost 20 pounds in the last year. Um, probably gained some of it back. What with the uh, stress eating of moving, but still, um, I look I, in many ways. I look better than I have in a long time, but that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, okay, well, maybe, maybe if I just work a little hard, then I'll. Maybe if I lose another twenty pounds, then I'll be. Then I'll really be in good shape. Yeah. Then I'll. Then I'll look a lot better. I'll feel a lot better about myself. You know. So like that's one. And then any number of professional goals. Obviously, if I achieve this, then mm-hmm. then I'll have it. Um, and some of those goals I have achieved and. All, all, that, all that winds up happening is another carrot gets dangled in front of me, and I just keep chasing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things, and I mentioned it uh, earlier that I would that I would uh, reiterate this is that. Uh, so as I mentioned, I'm going on a hiatus uh, for the month of April, and I'm going to be watching a number of movies. Uh, the reason I'm taking the hiatus is so that I can catch up on some movies that I feel like I should have seen by now. And as I've said on the show, both this and Battleship Pretension. I often feel like a fraud from a film critic standpoint because I have not seen this movie or that movie or whatever. And and I just make myself miserable. 
I, because it's one of those things like, you haven't seen Seven Samurai? How dare you host two podcasts? And then it often takes on this other context of, you've been called to be a film critic. So you're letting down yourself, your listeners, and God by having not seen Seven Samurai. God, incidentally, really was actually kind of lukewarm on Seven Samurai. <laughs> but he loves Ron. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he thinks you need to see one to appreciate exactly, the other. Exactly. <laughs> it's very interesting. And so... That's more in Lamentations, if anyone wants to look that up. <laughs> we should have gotten that reference down. I don't know yeah, people did not... That. They did not know what to make of it at the time. Uh-uh. But... Uh, so... I've been planning this April thing for a while, and I'll, and but when it comes right down to it, I'm really only going to see by the end of it. I really have, I really will only have seen ten movies that I had not seen previously, and they're movie. You know, it's like the Three Colors trilogy, uh, the original Solaris, um, the Jean Cocteau Beauty and the Beast. Like there's there's a number of them that's like okay, I, I've heard good things about this. Passion of Joan of Arc is another one. Um, and I keep and for I noticed that for. For a while there, I was I was really clinging to April quite a bit, feeling like, all right, I will have, and this is, by the way, entirely the wrong way to approach film. It's like, all right, by the end of April, I will have acquired those films. <laughs> yeah. They are then a part of me. Well, and if you watch them, you consume their power. No that, question about yeah, it. It's like, it's like uh, Ravenous. Right. Anyway, so it's, uh, it's like, so I will be that much closer to what? Perfection. To not being a fraud, to absolute perfection. And by the way, if I'm that much closer, when do I achieve it? The only actual answer is when I've seen every film. <laughs> enough that, times to... Enough times to understand them have, yeah. and then have the right opinion about them. Thank God you're not a book critic. Oh, it's... <laughs> it, and that's the thing. It's like... Or an internet critic. Is there such a thing? Is that a job, internet critic? They just look at all the uh, websites. Yes. I'm sure Everyone online a- has it. <laughs> I'm sure it's not a paying job. It's got to be. I review the internet. I thought the internet was pretty good today. This was a good week for internet. Uh, the the Onion AV Club does have a little uh, section called Great Job Internet, where, the, where something that came about only as a function of the internet, uh, they're like, oh, Look at this. And there's usually some pretty good videos and stuff. I believe uh, our friend Kevin Porter's uh, supercut of uh, Aaron Sorkinisms, uh, I think, wound up in there. Oh, yeah, but, there um, That's cool. But yeah, and so uh, so that it's something, this, this theme has become very relevant to me because it's just like, oh, I haven't seen this. I have no, like, I don't deserve whatever. I don't deserve to have two podcasts. I don't deserve any of these things until I have seen these movies. And like that... I cannot think of a more classic, as Jen has really been adamant about putting it, a, I cannot think of a more classic lie than the only way for you to be good enough at the thing that God has called you to do is to be absolutely perfect and have done everything. Yeah. Like, it's in, it's insane. And yeah. literally, it's like, I'm not in any position to be like Maya. Right. I will only be like Jack Nicholson. But... I need to keep Maya's arc in mind. Yeah. Because the only way you wind up like Jack Nicholson is if you are sure that when you achieve this thing, then you will have then you will get the closure and you'll get the satisfaction, you will be complete. Yeah. And so in thinking about these movies and the themes that we're talking about, um I have uh 
I've tried to get some perspective, at least on the month of April, and be like, all right, by the end of April, I will have seen 10 great movies. I'm no better a person because of that. Mm-hmm. I'm no worse. It'd be weird to be worse. But, um, but that's all. And now I can talk. Now I can incorporate those movies into my discussion. Great. But more than anything, I've seen these movies and I've been probably affected by them. Yeah. That's great. You know, there there is definitely something to. Um, we you don't you don't assume it. You don't want it to be true for you. Certainly, uh, I mean, you as just in anybody. But mm-hmm. sometimes it is it is a blessing from God to not get what you want and to not achieve what you think you want to achieve. Yeah. Um, but I just don't want that to be my life. I want, oh, absolutely. I want someone else's life to be that example. Yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah. just don't like. I want to be the guy who gets what he wants, yeah. and and then is um, is so thankful about it and has just the right attitude once he's gotten the thing that he wants. And yeah. did I say thing? I meant things. <laughs> yeah. And so um, as I was uh, putting together like various quotes and Bible verses and stuff, which will kind of breeze through because again, I don't want to take too long. Um, I found actually in some sermons that I listened to, a lot of this reminded me of the way some people talk about hell. So, I'm going to read something real quick from Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Um, this is a, uh, a story that Jesus is telling. I did, I did not incorporate the whole thing, so you can go and read, uh, read that section for yourself if you like. So, I will read this and then we'll, we'll comment on it a little. I'll read some commentary on it. <clears throat> There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linens and lived in, a, in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's super gross. That's my commentary there. Uh, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from he- who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, this may seem like a weird passage to to read through, um, but it was. Spe- uh, this is specifically the uh, the passage that is discussed in one of my favorite sermons by Tim Keller, in which he talks about hell. And so I wanted to, uh, so I, I transcribe part of the the sermon, which I'll read here, or I'll, I'll have. Uh, hey, Josh, you want to read it? Sure. It's on page two. There, it's the second quote, starting with "What is your highest good?" So this is Tim Keller specifically commenting on the passage that we just read. He says, what is your highest good? What is the thing you really live for? What is the thing that is your ultimate value? What is it or what is that which gives meaning to your life? What is that what is it that gives you a sense of who you are? What is your best thing, your highest thing, your ultimate value? That's the thing that gives you an identity. This man now had his good things. It's past tense. Status and wealth was was the basis for identity. And now that the status and wealth is gone, there's no him left. He was a rich man or nothing. He has no identity. He's gone. He's nameless. Because when you take away everything, like wealth and status, he has no identity. Okay. And so um, I also wanted to uh, 
there's a quote from The Great Divorce, which, by the way, anytime you talk about hell, um, I will recommend The Great Divorce because it's it's a C.S. Lewis book and it's a great uh, depiction of hell. And uh, in this passage, um, characters describe seeing Napoleon in hell in his own house. And it says, Napoleon was walking up and down, up and down all the time, left, right, left, right, never stopping for a moment. The two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never rested, and muttering to himself all the time. It was, I don't totally know how you say all this stuff. It was Solt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. Like that all the time, never stopped for a moment. A little fat man, and he looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem able to stop it. Um <laughs> And when you think about it, like, basically this character, in saying that it's everybody else's fault, he's just, it's constant self-justification. Um, it certainly wasn't my fault, I was right, and it's that idea that is driving him, that has driven him insane, and his basically, he's creating his own hell here, because mm-hmm. um, he, he's miserable, you know, obviously. Um, he may be constantly focused on how right he is, but he's absolutely miserable. And in that sense, I feel like to go back to some of the stuff that I, that I deal with, I feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much about how right I am, but I do think that I'm right in my priorities Mm -hmm. and I just focus on them and focus on them. It's like, no, 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 this is absolutely, I'm absolutely confident that this is what will make me happy. And incidentally, in focusing so firmly on that, never stopping, I'm basically creating hell for myself. Like not unlike the, uh, the character from, from the pledge. That's Mm -hmm. what I imagine. Um, when I read this passage, so, um, so there's a, there's a few other things. Um, and another is from that same sermon by Tim Keller, Jason, I'll have you read it. It's the thing after the CS Lewis, uh, quote there on page two. So starting with, if you look at anything in this life, mm-hmm. if you look at anything in this life and say, if I had that, then I have importance and value. But if I don't have that, then I'm nothing. If you look at money, career, talents, your looks, if you look at a relationship, if you look at your parents, if you look at your children, if you look at power, approval, comfort, control, if you look at any of these things and make them more fundamental to your significance and security than the love and knowledge of God, then, though you may believe in the God of the Bible, though you may pray to the God of the Bible, though you may, uh, though you may obey the laws of the God of the Bible, But your faith, the justification for your life, the roots of your identity, what you really worship, in other words, is something else. And uh, I find that to be – I tend to like – whether it be uh, something from the Bible or something that somebody says, I like lists. I like when people (laughs) just list things off uh, in rapid succession. Um, because not only does it's like okay, well, uh, let's see, I uh, I identify myself with any number of these things, but mm-hmm. by making a list, it implies it's this and so much more. It can be mm-hmm. literally anything. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that the same sermon? Yeah. Okay. Which um, I will link to in the show notes. Yeah, that's uh, especially that is very ecclesiastical. Oh, I'm sure. And um, I know that you just went through a, a series on Ecclesiastes. Yeah, my my community group just finished studying Ecclesiastes, which was my idea. Um, of course, poor it was. choice on my part. <laughs> um, but no, and it really the the thing we've we've been discussing week after week after week. It go, especially sort of the first five chapters, they go through you know pleasure and accomplishments and wisdom and power and all of these things that a, a person can build their life on and build their identity on, and it just 
cuts those things off and it cuts them down to size. Uh, you know, it calls them vanity. It calls them meaningless. Um, you know, it, it just it, it, specifically in regard to like the goals you have. It says like, well, why do you like? You're never going to accomplish anything because no matter how hard you work, there's somebody after you. Mm-hmm. So they could screw it up. Um, and, and it talks about people uh, who who are so focused on their accomplishments having no rest and not being able to sleep at night because they're so consumed with these things that they want to get done that they can't even they can't rest that that idea of an absence of rest uh, a person not being able to relax mm-hmm. um, I, I I know you I don't I don't all of us identify with that yeah. um, especially as people who are driven and, and maybe you know it's different for everybody but there is a specific type of um, of hell you can put yourself through when you're a creative person mm-hmm. and you have these goals and you think these are valid things to pursue and they are valid things to pursue yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the in reading some commentary for Ecclesiastes came across Matthew Henry's commentary um, and he says basically the point of Ecclesiastes is to take down our esteem of and our expectation from the things of this world mm-hmm. um, and there's a great verse in First uh, uh, Peter that uh, is actually quoting Isaiah 40 um, that says uh, men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers, and flowers fall, <laughs> but the word of the Lord stands forever. Right. And it's basically just that idea that, like, no matter what you build your life on, it's fleeting, and it ju- is just going to collapse in front of you mm. unless that something is Christ and only Christ. Yeah, yeah. I have a. Uh a passage from the Bible here. It's Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house. Uh, and yet, I don't know where, uh, there's a typo there. Sorry, everybody. Uh, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So, speaking of, like, building your house on things. And it's yeah. interesting that he says, like, you know, those who hears who hear these words and put them into practice in their own life, they are actually... They're finding the only solid thing, the only thing that will yeah. last. Um, and then, of course, but that's the thing. One could say it's like, oh, it sounds. It, it seems like a weird analogy because someone who does who hears these words and doesn't put them into practice, it's odd that they're also building a house on something. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're merely not building a house. Yeah, they're building their house on something else. Whatever, and it might be. It's different for everybody. Yeah, and it goes to. We, I've said it a billion times. It keeps coming up almost every episode. I'm sorry, everybody. The Bob Dylan lyric, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Mm-hmm. If it's not God that you're building your house on, it'll be something else. It could be your looks. It could be your job. It could be your yeah. family. None of these things are bad in and of themselves, No, but they will all go away. Yeah. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about them in terms of um, perishable versus Imperishable, mm-hmm. and what is your salvation based on? Yeah, uh, he specifically says. And so this, and and to bring this back to, uh, to I'm the, sorry, Peter. Oh yes, indeed, First Peter, not Paul. 
Oh, well, none of us caught it, so I guess we're all bad Christians. But anyway, um, I'll bet you Paul talked about. I, I bet he. I bet he talked about something similar. Something like that. Maybe a time or two. Sure, why not? But this was Peter. He seems like the type. Yeah. Um, but to bring it back to the the movies that, that we're discussing, you know, we talk about these things going away in some way, mm-hmm. and in the case of Maya, it goes away because she has achieved it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like that's. It's like what you said. Like you. You want to have learned this lesson for yourself, but you also do want to have gotten this thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like that idea of like, you know, I don't remember who said it, like, let me, uh, Lord, let me be chased, but not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this, it's wanting both. It's wanting like, it's like, I want all the wisdom of building my house on God so that I don't, ha- so that I don't have my identity in anything temporary, and yet I still would like all that temporary success. Yeah. That would be really great. And if I don't have that, then yeah, I guess I still have God as a kind of a consolation prize. <laughs> well, and and you know what it is? It's because, Lord, I know myself, and I know I'm going to worry about those things, and I'm going to be consumed <laughs> by those things. So just take a, you know, if I just get what I want, then I won't be consumed. Then it's by easy it. to build yeah, my yeah. life on you because I yeah, got all that exactly. stuff already. I don't have to worry about that yeah. anymore. It's just it's just easier for everyone. It's like a noisy dog in the house. You know what? You you, you got to deal with the dog first, or else it's going to keep barking. <laughs> exactly. So feed the dog. Yeah, it's a symptom. Yeah, and and God, you're the cure by giving me unparalleled professional success. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah. it's that easy. And it's so just that easy. Um, so I wanted to read a, uh, a rather long passage here from a, a book called Running on Empty, uh, written by Phil Anderson. And I'll read this because it's, it's rather lengthy and I don't want to ask you guys to do that. Uh, as an adult, I was still lo- – because – and the reason that I wanted to read this is that – because I wanted to emphasize that, you know, I mentioned earlier that, like, good things can be the things that uh, – that you put in front of you, mm-hmm. but because you've taken go- uh, something good and made it ultimate, like then you're just building your house on sand again. And so this is a guy who actually his ministry to younger mm-hmm. people became that, uh, as an adult, I was still looking for status and an identity, and I thought I had found both in my work. Although my desire to help adolescents know the truth about God was genuine, was genuine, so was my desire for identity, which I believed was contingent upon being recognized as an effective leader. If any efforts, gener- if any, if my, pardon me, if my efforts generated good results, I had plenty of self-esteem. Before I knew it, my identity was consumed by my by my work. Life became a big scoreboard where the points that measured my work or in my case, its lack, were being posted. Sadly, I had begun to sell my soul to those who could add or take away points from the scoreboard. Any activity others deemed successful led me to feel worthwhile. When people referred to me as irreplaceable, my heart swelled with pride and relief. To feel good about myself, I worked harder and longer, constantly fearing that someday someone would discover that I was not everything I was working so hard to prove I was. I was now the prisoner of my self-made illusions. Since I often resented the demanding pace, I daydreamed about life scenarios that contrasted dramatically with my daily existence. In my daytime fantasies, life was simple and uncomplicated, and somehow I was completely in control of my life. But instead, reality meant, uh, reality meant there were always too many things going on, too many demands, and too many needs. Always running behind, I couldn't finish everything I believed I must do. Burdened and guilty from, for being so inadequate in my efforts to rev up my personal 
performance, I shamed myself for being unable to respond to all the needs that clamored for my attention. Why do I, or you for that matter, tend to equate identity and worth with our activity and accomplishments? The thing that jumped out at me was when he says, uh, constantly fearing that someday someone would discover that I was not everything I was working so hard to prove I was. Mm -hmm. The word for that is fraud. Yeah. <laughs> and there so, is there is a great David Foster Wallace short story that you need to read called okay. Good Old Neon. All about feeling like a fraud. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody feels like that at some point. But that's the thing is like you're just working so hard at, at these things, but you know that you're not mm -hmm. you know, I mean uh, somebody who famously considered himself a fraud was Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. Um he he, con he constantly made comments about it. And it just astounds. And his whole thing was like, and it's it's uh, briefly mentioned in the HBO movie uh, RKO two eighty one. He was a, he was afraid because everyone called him a genius, and he was afraid that people would discover he wasn't a genius. Incidentally, he was. So yeah. how was he afraid of that? And it's because he had just put all this in other people's hands, things that could go away, like just things that just were out of his control. But even if they were in his control, he wasn't happy. I can't mm. believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to mention a scene from Rock of Ages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Which I watched about a total of 35 minutes. Did we pick minutes, the wrong so. companion film here, Jason? Uh, Tom Cruise is, is in, like a, a, a rock star in it from the 35 minutes that I watched bits and pieces. I just watched his scenes. Indeed. But someone like basically asked him, like, you were great. Like, why aren't you great? Like, all these people, like... You know, you just kind of have them at your beck and call. But, like, what are you doing with your life? And he says, like, none of those people understand me because they don't live in here. Mm -hmm. um, and, is of course, Tom Cruise sells it because he's Tom Cruise. And <laughs> right. He's a great actor. Um, but it is that thing of, like, it doesn't matter if some – it really – you want other people to tell you you're great. But at the same time, you want that to click something in your mind that – adjusts your standards as well because your yeah. standards mm. are always going to be different than those around you you're always going to expect more of yourself and so you want someone to be able to say something that makes that completes the equation that is unfulfilled in your head yeah hmm. and of course as christians we know that someone already has said that yeah but it's often the first person that we forget and that is of course god and and jesus just this idea that like that you are already loved. Like the thing that gets me, one of my biggest fears for a number of reasons is that I go blind or that I lose my hearing. Hmm. It really doesn't matter. Either one makes me unable to be a critic anymore. And that is often how, and it, yeah. unable to watch movies, critic or not unable to watch movies. And that is who I am mm -hmm. in a lot of ways that terrifies me. And I will at that point have lost my identity completely. It is a, horrible fear and mm -hmm. it comes up i'm gonna say every couple of weeks i think about it yeah and and the weird thing is is spiritually we are told like no you're still loved and you're loved by god your god approves of you just as much if you weren't able to do this thing mm-hmm as if you were the best. If I literally went and saw every movie tomorrow, admittedly, logistically, it might be a little difficult. We're in a click sort of situation where you can just pause. Absolutely. Rock of Ages and now click? Yeah. We had a good thing going here. I'm, I'm getting some deep cuts. I'm trying to appeal to lots of different demographics here. So what we're saying with this episode is you need to see Zodiac 
and click and click. Right. Then you need to see about a, you need to see about ten minutes of Rock of Ages yeah. and really about a thirty second clip you can probably find on YouTube of click. In, in mm-hmm. t- yeah. And just a you, clip of click. If you don't see those, you're you're just short of perfection. That's exactly, right. exactly. And you want to be perfect, don't you? A critic would see everything would surely know that. And so, um, <laughs> right? Is that the message? Yeah, I think so. Yes. But that's the thing. If tomorrow I able, I was able to do everything that I think will make me complete. Yeah. I will be no more loved by God than I am today. Or if tomorrow I, I, I manage to screw up something and I'm in many ways worse off than I am. Somehow you're able to forget every for, movie yeah. that you've ever seen. Exactly. And even what a movie is. <laughs> yeah. I just lose my taste completely and everything that... Um, I forget the name of the guys that did the date movie and stuff. Seltzer and Freeberg? Sure, why not? Anyway... Um, I, th- suddenly, those are my favorite movies. I get hit on the head, and those are my favorite movies right. of all time. I am no, I'm not loved less by God. I'm going to be loved less by a number of people, yeah, but not by God. And that should be freeing. And yet, somehow, we it's still, crippling. yeah, and we're still just like, I understand that, but man, it sure would be great to have both, wouldn't it? Because we <laughs> think God got it wrong. Yeah. Because we're like, no, 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 you should love me less because I love me less. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, and it's, and literally the reason that I brought up this, you know, this stuff about hell is that, I mean, I really am of the opinion that like hell is really just kind of our own making. I do believe that there is a hell and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing, but like there is something to be said about just being given over to y- yourself yeah. and that is hell mm-hmm. um, I believe uh, from I think it's from the great divorce where in the end there are only two kinds of people the people that look at God and say thy will be done and the people that God looks at and says thy will be done mm-hmm. and basically just says you think that this is w- what you need to define you and you don't need me anymore fair enough yeah. go, go ahead so let me let me ask you this because we've been talking about a, a lot, just sort of being trapped in our own heads and making mm-hmm. a, a hell for ourselves. Um, what what do you do about that? I mean, the end of Ecclesiastes. I, I mentioned this in my most recent community group is almost anticlimactic. It ends with the writers being like, you know what, guys, I'm leaving. I'm yeah. done with this. And then it says door closing. <laughs> it's very odd. No muffled steps down the stairs. What it ends with is the conclusion of the matter. That's the heading. <laughs> and it just says, fear God and keep his commandments. And it's basically stand in awe of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. And this is, you know, the most the, the wisest man to live, giving us the simplest answer. Um, and that is somehow infuriating because you want it to be this complex, rich, big thing. And it is a big thing, but mm-hmm. it's a big, small thing. And it's a big, simple thing. And that's mm-hmm. a, a lot of times harder for especially ambitious people um, to, to accept. It's hard for me to accept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what do you do? How do you combat this? How do we combat this as Christians? Well, uh Practically, I don't know. Uh, no, actually, I, there's a few things that I do for myself. Sometimes they work. I wish I could say they always work. They don't. Um, but one of them is, it, it's. It, I often have to get very specific, mm-hmm. and I have to. I have to get, it, like, use specific examples and say, 
if you never saw Seven Samurai in your life, mm-hmm. and yet you were still a critic and you were still doing as much as you could. Now, in theory, you will eventually see it because that's part of doing as much as you can. But let's say you're never able to. Mm-hmm. You, you're still loved. You are not better. You're not worse. You are still loved. Everything about you can be stripped away. You could ha- you could peak. This could be the peak of what you have to offer as a person. Mm-hmm. And God still loves you. And then what I often and then I get kind of broad and I say like you could lose your arms, legs, ears, and eyes, and uh, ability to speak. You literally, quite frankly, are no good. To anybody, mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to put it in so callous a term, but you are only a burden. Yeah. But you're not a burden to God. Mm-hmm. In fact, he loves you in that state just as much. And by the way, he loves you and died for that person just as much as he died for Gandhi, Mother Teresa, like all these people that yeah. we immediately jump to is like, oh, they're, they're these great people. Mm-hmm. Like, and when I look at it like that, of course, I can't, I can't. I can't internalize internalize it as much as I would like to, but repeating specific instances about me and then broad instances about this thing that you're afraid of happening, like the thing when it says like you know when people described the, the, when Phil Anderson from Running on Empty when he says people described him referred to him as irreplaceable, mm. that struck something. It's just like ooh yeah yeah. Irreplaceable means necessary, totally necessary. And this idea that, like, you're actually not necessary to God. He doesn't actually need you, but he still wants you. Right. But what you're saying is you you essentially remind yourself of the promises of God. Yes. That that God has promised, um, and we can see it made true in our lives, that, that he will continue to love us. And the way Jesus, like, specifically went out, went after the people that were marginalized in society. Like, I mean, when you think about it, like all the, okay, in, in the society of online film criticism, the man who has not seen seven samurai is the marginalized. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It, It sounds weird to put it that way, but like, you know, I, people online have said like, I can't believe you haven't seen that. People have said about David and I, like they haven't seen this. So it makes me like, they said it on unironically, like, I feel like I can't listen to them if they mm-hmm. haven't seen this. Like there is like in any culture that in which you may fall into, you might actually be the marginalized just as lepers were just as prostitutes were just as tax collectors were. And it's like God specifically goes to the, these people because if he goes to them, he can go to anybody, mm-hmm. including you. And so like having a very specific thing in the Bible, like an image of God preaching to people that, probably felt like you a lot of, in a lot of ways like that helps me as well a mm-hmm. little bit so i don't know josh, josh. what do you think <laughs> yeah you sounds, seem to have this worked out sounds good to me <laughs> um no i mean uh, i think there's i'm thinking recently especially in, in uh kind of the, some of the discussions we've had in our community group and, and uh and everything but a lot of it goes back to kind of how how real our our faith is in God because we know all of the specifics. Like it's all, it's all in the Bible for, you know, Christians who have read it. Like we should know all of this already. Like it should just come naturally. Like your God loves you more than you could ever deserve. And that's great. And if you, 
if you believe that 100%, then none of this stuff, none of this stuff should even happen to you. Like, none of this should matter. You shouldn't have any, mm-hmm. like, you shouldn't have any, you shouldn't care at all about whether your career is going well or whether, you know, whether you're lucky in love or whatever. Um, but we are that way. So there, there's, I think there's that idea that there is a, it's, it's a lifelong journey in making your faith something that's, that's real that's totally real and and i think probably most people maybe all people never quite get there so i don't know there there's uh, as far as looking at it from the christian walk i think there's a lot of work to be done just in in making that real and allowing that to be real and some of it means pushing other stuff out of the way maybe and maybe that's what that's how we handle our mm-hmm. careers and our our uh, you know our other aspirations and desires and things like that cuz I don't know. It, 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 it's possible that maybe just having just the fact of having those things there and having those things as important to us makes it more difficult to mm-hmm. actually see the the reality of of God's promise to us and you know how important we are in that light. And you know, I think practically, like something you can do in your day to day life, and it may sound kind of strange, but I, I found it helpful in my own life is. Surround yourself. Don't be, you know, it doesn't have to be exclusively this, but surround yourself with people who have the same priorities as you and, and know what, uh, what your collective priority should be. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you are a Christian and you are supposed to be God minded and you are surrounded by people that are not, not only non Christian, but also, you know, I mean, of course, we all live in Los Angeles yeah. and there's the Hollywood mindset that is stereotypical yet completely true. Um, you know, I mean, just it's a it's constant competition. There's the possibility of like you know backstabbing and all. You'll never work in this town again, like all that kind of stuff. Like it can happen, mm. and so you you want to surround yourself with people that are on your side and remind you that like, hey, you didn't get that ad- that audition. You may get the next one. Like hey, you'll get the next one. Like it's it sucks that you didn't get the audition. It, you know, it sucks that you didn't get the part. Like they can they can mourn with you, but also remind you. You know, your success is not. Our friendship is not contingent on your on your success, and your worth as a person is not contingent on that either. Because there are plenty of people for whom they'd be like, "That's not true at all." Yeah. And so, um, so I think practically that's something you can do is have people yeah. in your life that remind you of what you know to be mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. L- yeah. Let me say this, and I, I'm saying this, and what I'm going to say is probably going to sound very simple and kind of cliche and and it probably is um but that doesn't make it untrue um and it's also something that i am so abysmal at um and need to do more Mm -hmm. all of all of our solutions have 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 still centered on us Mm -hmm. um and i'm thinking specifically about like the the goals that both of these lead characters have Mm -hmm. and they are unflinching in going after their goals. Um, one of the things from, again, the most recent community group discussion, so I'm just, I'm really just regurgitating all of this stuff, which is, which is fine. But, and, and it's something that our pastor Rankin has said numerous times, that uh, it's, not, it's not about thinking less of yourself, it's about thinking about yourself less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes really hits on is service. And service being the antidote to these kinds of worry. Um, 
and and that it actually can turn into praise hmm. um, because it it literally takes us out of our own minds it it prohibits us um, the that that particular chapter talks about just looking up to the stars and just basically like why why am I not big enough to see all of this from that perspective mm-hmm. and it takes that kind of internal and eternal um, just unending questions and calculations about ourselves it takes that and it forces us to push that aside while we focus on somebody else mm-hmm. and while we focus on their problems and the the result is is more often than not that we gain perspective about ourselves and that the lord shows us kind of reprioritizes things for us because we see what somebody else is dealing with, what somebody else needs, and that really kind of jars us from from that that focus on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't do it nearly enough, but every time I do, and then you could even get into uh, the endless cycle of like, well, what kind of service makes me feel best? <laughs> yeah, you know oh, absolutely. I mean? And it's like so. There's I mean, there's pitfalls with with everything, but yeah. focusing on other people. Um, and it was so so that was one of the most convicting things to me because i like thinking about myself i like talking about myself yeah um and it's very hard for me to take the time because time is so important to me mm-hmm. to spend my time on what somebody else wants and what is important to them and what what they're interested in and what they need um but it is su- it it can be such a blessing to us to get outside of ourselves and for the Lord to reprioritize for us. And in doing so, it really does put you at. Don't think I'm saying more than I am. It really does put you in the position of Jesus and God. Not that hey, I get to play Jesus, but like you know, we often say like we want to be like Christ. Well, what mm-hmm. Christ did is he listened to what people needed and he served mm-hmm. and he yeah. served them. You know, and and he put them first I, to the point of dying for them. Mm-hmm. And so, if we put other people first in some way, then and I have found it time and time again in my own life, I'm constantly worried about how I'm viewed. Yeah. But sometimes, like, and so, like, I'll sometimes I'll talk to somebody and ask them, like, you know, how's everything going with you? And then they'll start talking, and I will have to force myself to listen, because other times, it's just like, oh, I've got such a great piece of advice. And it's like, and, uh-huh. and the advice is probably good, and I might get to say it later, but right, not right now. Listen until they're done talking. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, like, you're meeting them where they are, and that's kind of all, that, in that instance, that, that might be all that person needs. You are serving them yeah. how they need to be served, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, like, and when that happens, when I've when I've done that, I'm not thinking about myself anymore. And one, of, and oddly enough, one of the things that I that I often think about, and I've said this on the show before, is I, I constantly doubt my friendships. I kind of I always doubt that people like me, mm-hmm. and that they are actually my friend, and that they're always just kind of looking at their watch, waiting to to get out. Um, and or then, start, like started a timer in some. Cool one way. could say that, yes. <laughs> um, and so, like, <laughs> but, like, that goes away whenever I just focus on them. Just stop thinking about how they view you and just start view. <laughs> stop thinking about how they look at you and just look at them. And then, like, in yeah. doing so, like, that all falls away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, by the way, like, who knows? Maybe there actually is a problem that uh, that they have with you. 
But if you're talking with them and actually listening, that actually might come out as opposed to just worrying all the time. Yeah. Because that actually doesn't, uh, one could say it doesn't add an hour to your life. One, one could, could say that. One could say that. <laughs> um, Someone should write that down, put it in a book. Sounds Absolutely. like a bestseller. Um, so I do have a couple of uh, couple of verses to, to end on here, and one of them actually factors very well into s- some stuff that Jason was saying. Uh, the first one is Romans 8, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... Uh, Ah, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So, obviously, the flesh is... <coughs> it's unfortunate. As time has gone on, the flesh has come to mean, like, sexual sin. But it can mean anything. It can yeah. mean just this, you know, our earthly desires and earthly goals and that kind of thing. Um, and then the last one, and this is something that really struck me because you were talking about rest. And, like, often the things that we worry about keep us awake. I know yeah. it happens to me. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. And it's a quote from Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, uh, you know, of course, all the stuff that we're talking about is incredibly hard to execute. Yeah. But it's... It's so fascinating that like it, it all it all leads to something much simpler than the things you're working on. Yeah. Um, and it's just like you don't need to worry about all this stuff. You don't need to worry about if you're a good person if you do this or that because eventually you'll just drive yourself insane anyway, mm-hmm. um, and create a, create your own hell whether you go there literally or if you're just here on earth driving yourself insane. And uh, it's like, you don't have to do that. Just follow me. It's like you said, it's simple. It's dece- it seems simple. Mm-hmm. And it's because it is, it's hard to execute, but it's actually quite simple. Just, yeah. you know, cast your, you know, cast your cares upon Jesus. Like he'll, he's, he's got you and things may be, be- things may go bad. Things may go great. You might not be doing everything you could. You might be doing everything you can. You're loved no matter what. Yeah. And, and that's oftentimes when we build our identity on other things. Not oftentimes, all the time. And some would just put all of these under the heading of an idol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's because we doubt God's goodness or we doubt that he truly loves us. Mm-hmm. And because we doubt that, we've got to have a contingency plan. And exactly. And we've got to have something that we're going to do and that, that gives us a, a semblance of control. And that actually reminds okay. This this is going in a weird direction. It reminds me of something that uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie once said uh, about. He is often uh, spoken about as somebody who is just very outspoken and kind of has a weird tone and that kind of thing. And he he said, you know, the thing the thing is, like, I could hem and haw, and in doing so, I'm giving myself an escape hatch. I'm being very vague. I'm making vague promises. I'm not. Si- I'm not speaking definitively, so that sometime in the future you could you could uh, confront me on one of those vague promises, and then I've given myself the escape hatch of specifics, and be like, right. ah, but what I meant was this, and then I've gotten myself out of trouble. When I'm being truthful, I'm not giving myself that escape hatch. But it's also great because. I don't have to try to remember and juggle all these things. It's much easier 
if you just focus on this thing, like the the idea of the truth will set you free and mm-hmm. and all that. And so in that way, like we do give ourselves, like you said, an escape hatch, a contingency plan. Like, all right, this God thing doesn't work out, then at least I've got my plan of watching every movie ever made. Right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? No matter how crazy that may sound, yeah. like. And it's just like, you know what? And, and it's like what it's like what people often say about like, oh, you know, you got to be careful because your fallback, like like with careers, picking careers, you got to be careful with a fallback because you'll fall back on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if I always agree th- with that as far as careers go. But like, if you, like you need to do everything you can. And if you manage to do it, let me know how. But like, do everything you can to commit completely to God. There is no escape hatch. Yeah. This is, you're all in. You know, and it's hard to do, but, and it seems terrifying to do, but in the end, it's, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's the best thing. And it, and I'll, I'll, I'll sum up with this and you can speak to this. Whenever people talk about Ecclesiastes, they talk about it as a depressing book. Now, it's a heavy book. There's no question about that. But it's really not actually depressing. If you if you think about it, mm-hmm. what it's saying is that everything is foolishness, the chasing after the wind and be like, oh, I don't want to hear that. It's like, yeah, but it's true. All this other stuff is going to pass away. Well, it's saying that life without God is vanity yeah. and is meaningless. And if you if you view these things as the ultimate thing that is going to essentially gain you salvation, these things are going to save you, then you're deluding yourself. But the the great the thing that's not depressing at all about it is that god has spoken meaning into all of these things just not ultimate meaning he just hasn't said that those can save you mm-hmm. um but there is meaning in a a, a job that you love or a, a a family a wife that you love or a husband that you love or you know having good friendships or you know whatever the case may be there there is meaning in those things there's meaning all around us in everything that goes on but it's only because of christ it's only because god spoke meaning into this world it's like a cs quote that i cs lewis quote that i don't have in front of me so i'm gonna probably butcher it a little bit but talking about the sun that god is like the sun not only can you see it, but it's by it that you are able to see everything else. Yeah. So basically, I guess what we're talking about is perspective. Um, so, okay. So we've been going on for a while, so I'll just go ahead and just, uh, I'll just cut it short. It's not short, <laughs> but I'll stop it and, uh, and just say, um, you know, if you guys have any, uh, questions or comments, you can always email me, Tyler, more than one lesson.com, Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. Um, you can uh, just go to more than one. You can go to more than one lesson and uh, find various sermons and blogs and that kind of thing. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter dot com slash more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh Long. Okay, you can follow us on Facebook as well. Jason, can people find you online anywhere? If they really try. All right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, uh, this is going to be the last episode for a little while. We will see you in four or five weeks. Uh, the next episode. I'm not sure if it'll be a full episode or a mini-sode yet, uh, but I'll let you know. And, uh, yeah, Jason, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Josh, as always, thanks for uh, participating. Mm -hmm. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.